Howdy, and welcome to another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I'm your host, Daniel Dolphin. Our guest today is Miss Katrin Silva of Katrin Silva Dressage. She, of course, trains dressage, but also Western and Western dressage. She currently lives in the vicinity of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Katrin is a native of Germany and more eloquent in writing than most native English speakers. She is also an ultra marathoner and legit badass, in my opinion. Welcome. She is the author of Ride with Feel, a guide for the rest of us, and dressage for all of us. She believes riding is a two-way conversation, not just a series of imperatives directed at a horse. We need to have the same expectations and cultivate the same qualities in ourselves that we want from the horse. Katrin uh, is not a highly competitive rider and believing that that's what validates her training and her career, but she has won the USDF bronze medal. She's a 2022 SFDA high point in third level dressage, 2022 AQHA Reserve World Champion in level three Western dressage, as well as the 2022 AQHA Bronze Champion in level three Western dressage. She has had such mentors as Conrad Schumacher, Christine Traurig, Debbie McDonald, Bill Woods, and Bill McMullen, and especially wants to thank Nicole Hunger. Am I pronouncing that correctly? It has an umlaut in it, Daniel. What's that? <laughs> it has an umlaut. It has the U. Mm -hmm. So it's German. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay. Good job. <laughs> uh, and, and Nicole is a German master level uh, trainer who has been working with Katrin for over 20 years. So, Katrin, how are you doing today? It's good to see you again. It's good to see you too, Daniel. I'm doing great. That's wonderful. You're telling me, as we were talking before, y'all are finally getting some rain in your neck of the woods. I think in New Mexico, rain in the summer would be pretty welcome sight. It is. It is. It's. It smells beautiful here in the desert, and I just feel really lucky to be here. I mean, it's. It's a beautiful sight. So in, in Germany, I'm not really familiar with the terrain, but I'm thinking of a more mountainous, forested sort of a country, certainly in a colder climate than what you're in right now. So, do you prefer the desert or or a deep dark forest oh or, i prefer the desert oh my god yeah and I'm, I'm from like a hilly you know green uh, part of germany it's it's pretty it's by the danube river but i have to tell you i came to new mexico when i was 19 i have I had a tourist visa i was just gonna you know work on a ranch for a couple of months and learn something and then i just never went home and that was uh god uh, that was 33 years ago so yeah i love it here well i'm glad you stayed <laughs> Well, we start off every guest with the lightning round questions just to sort of break the ice. And Katrin, these are for points. So you want to be on your A game because right. there, there's prizes at the end. Okay. <laughs> if you were a Jedi, what percent chance would there be that you would use the Force inappropriately? There'd be a pretty good chance. I think the temptation would be humongous. Yeah, I'd be a very bad Jedi. I'd go to the dark side. <laughs> okay. Morning or evening? Mm, morning, but not early morning. Like okay. If I get to sleep until 7, I'm totally fine. <laughs> That's fair enough. Do you have a favorite way to treat aches and pains? 
Oh my God. Um, Advil and a glass of wine. What kind of wine do you like? Vino Verde from Portugal. It's like frizzy, light. It's perfect for summer. Sounds good. Bay or Sorrel? Oh, that's a tough one. Currently Bay. My my current favorite is a Bay guy. So yeah, Bay. Okay. Does pineapple belong on pizza? It does not. Okay. <laughs> And I'm thinking you're European, so yeah, that adds a whole new layer to this. I lived in Italy for a year. It's you know, it's like yeah, you he's like you can put it on pizza, but you know, in New Mexico we put green chili on pizza. Now that goes really well. That's like a marriage made in heaven. Pineapple, mm, I don't know. Not so much. Are you a yeah. cook? What's your favorite yeah. meal to cook? My favorite meal to cook. Gosh, I, I do this uh, you know lentil thing that's like uh, that that looks like a pizza. And it's actually kind of good for you, but it doesn't doesn't taste like it's good for you. So yeah, you'd probably like it. Okay. And, uh, so like the lentils are the crust, or how does that work? Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, yeah, you cook red lentils, and then you uh, you know, it's like you put some some vegetables and you know some some bacon pieces or whatever, and then you grate some cheese over it and some tomatoes, and then you broil it, and it tastes like this amazingly delicious pizza. But it's it's red lentils. It's it's really good. Okay. Well, I, I actually... I can uh, see you're skeptical. I, I can see you're no, not a lentil guy. No, I, I actually don't mind them at all. Uh, I have gout. And so one of my worst triggers oh. is beans. So any sort of dried bean, like, like lentils... Okay, would, so that's probably not for you. Yeah, that would be 10 days of unable to walk for me. So I, I would, uh, as much as I would like it, I, I would have to avoid that. If oh, that there, sounds horrible. It really stinks. Let me tell you, I'm learning my triggers more and more and, and, yeah. and, and sort of managing it and all, but, but you definitely, definitely have to alter your, your lifestyle and don't just get to do what you want to do. But I guess that's all part of aging anyway, right? Or, yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, it is. if there are good essential oils, do you think it's fair to say that there must also be evil essential oils? That is a really fair question. And yeah, I have some friends who peddle essential oils and I always roll my eyes. It's like, yeah, that's Santa Fe woo-woo. And uh, I'm sure they're not terrible for you, but yeah, I just can't bring myself to use them. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm quite skeptical of, of that. So That's an interesting question. I'm going to have to ponder that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have... I have to come up with an evil essential oil? Yeah, it's got to be uh, maybe catnip or I don't know. Do you have a no, horse? No, no, my cat would disagree with that. <laughs> well, I don't like cats, so that would be the uh, the deal. It draws in the cat. What? <laughs> yeah, hey, my wife. Daniel, this podcast is over right now. Oh my god, <laughs> how can you not like cats? They're too indifferent. Like as the saying goes, you own a dog, you feed a cat. Uh, my wife and my yeah, youngest the son. Yeah, my my wife is a avowed cat person, and and that's one of the biggest differences between us is over the cats. So, uh, I, I can see uh, my husband started out that way as an anti person, and now he's a bigger cat lover than I am. So, you know, there's hope for you. <laughs> Took 20 years, but there's hope for you. Well, I, I occasionally come up. We had a cat called Smokey, and Smokey was my cat. She loved me. She slept on my pillow with me. She was mean to other people. She would attack other people. But she would follow me like trail rides in the pasture behind the horse, just like the dogs would. 
Uh, when I would give lessons and stuff, she would jump up on my shoulder like a, a pirate's parrot or something, and I would walk around with her on my shoulder. So every once in a while, you come across a cool one, but she was unique, I would have to say. Do you have a horse industry-related pet peeve? Oh, gosh, a horse industry-related pet peeve. I have a dressage-related pet peeve, and that is that you know, that notion that dressage people walk, walk around like they're better than other horse people and that they have invented the, you know, that they have access to the Holy Grail and nobody else does. And I'm like, no, nah, that's bullshit. You know, there's a lot of ways to get things done, and there's a lot of truth out there that comes from all sorts of directions and, you know, all sorts of traditions. And so dressage people just need to live with that and you know, just talk to other people and, you know, just step off their pedestal. So that, yeah, that's, that's my biggest pet peeve. I like it. Do you have a favorite beverage? A favorite beverage? Probably coffee. Coffee. Okay. Yes. I would not say, I would not have thought you do not seem like a low energy person. So I would think uh, you get a couple cu cups of coffee in you and you would just vibrate in place or something. That, that's not true. <laughs> No, nah, no, nah, you should see me at six in the morning. I mean, it's like, yeah, and, and until the coffee kicks in, that's that's low energy. <laughs> <laughs> Would you tell us something unexpected about you? Something unexpected about me? I bake some really good German Christmas cookies. And, you know, I don't like to tell people about that because I have my badass reputation to protect, but I do. <laughs> and they taste really good. One of the things I liked about you we were doing lunch at the the Best Horse Practices Summit, and they had the table of desserts, which most people were avoiding. And you walked right up there and grabbed three cookies, and I happened to be standing there. You turned around, and you said, I run a lot. I feel like I should be able to eat these without any guilt. And boom. <laughs> and I was like, that's great. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you choose? Oh, man, I'd love to experience the world like a horse. I mean, I think of that a lot. And I would really love to just say I want to have the eyes and the ears and the sense of smell and the sense of touch that a horse does, just to experience that just to understand some of the things that after being around them all my life that still surprise me. I mean, I think, yeah, you know, I don't know if that would be a superpower, but that would be something I would dearly love or to make a horse talk like a person just for a day and say, look, like if you're colicking, where does it hurt? Like that would be so incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. I, I think yeah, I most of us would make bad horses. We would be uh, very difficult to get along with if we <laughs> had the same traits as horses for the most part. <laughs> Thoughts probably, or feelings? Are you more a thoughtful? Both. both? Of course, both. Okay. So so tell me about yeah. that. How, uh, does it, how do they go together for you? Much well, um, I, 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 yeah, it's like I shift back and forth. Like sometimes I get into my own head and think too much, and that's a bad thing. And then I've been accused mostly by my husband of being too emotional. So, you know, you can probably relate to that, um, or April can relate to that, not so much you. But uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely want to cultivate both. And, you know, I'm trying to like shift back and forth. And, and when I'm riding, it's, uh, yeah, more feeling than thinking, definitely. Are you decisive or indecisive? Oh, that depends. Like okay. I decided to move to New Mexico. That took me like five minutes or less. Like I just packed my backpack and said, I'm out of here. So yeah, that's, that was decisive. Then there's like what to order in a restaurant. My God, that, you know, that can take forever. 
Okay. I see that. You're you're a lady of of opposites, huh? Um Okay. Add some interest. Yeah, the, the big decisions are easy. The little decisions I agonize over. <laughs> you need to just carry a, a coin in your pocket and just flip the coin and and uh, go with it. Huh? I wish my wife would do that sometime. <laughs> oh, yeah, but yeah, some of the biggest decisions in my life, I'm just like, bingo, and yeah, that, that took no thought at all. And then the little tiny decisions, oh, my God, yeah, that takes forever. My wife and I fight over a lot of stuff. But like that, some of the big things we named our kids in less time than it takes her to pick a restaurant. That's one of those things that takes some couples months and you know, the baby will be two weeks old. and They still don't have a name. We named ours in five minutes. So uh, never <laughs> can tell. <laughs> what kind of music do you like? Oh, man. Um, well, um, when I moved, I grew up in the 80s. So, yeah, I got majorly into Bruce Springsteen. Um, you know, as a teenager, I got to see him in concert. And, yeah, that was awesome. And then I moved over here and then I got into country music. And so, you know, none of my German friends understand that. But I got majorly into Chris Ledoux. I would say that's my biggest fandom. Oh, yeah. So I've been listening to him since 1990 and I'll never get tired. Yeah. That that was a loss to the world right there. That man died. And I like like soon. Americana bluegrass. Uh, that was huge. Yeah, that okay. was huge. We just went drove through Casey, and every time we drive to Wyoming, I have to stop in Casey and uh, yeah, stop at that bronze statue and just like you know sit there and contemplate for a while. You know how lucky we were to have him, and for how long, and you know how good it would be if he was still around. I mean, it gets me super emotional. Well, I, I guess I'll let you answer this because we're, we're going to get into it more in a minute. But do you have a hobby outside of horses? Um, I run a lot, a fair amount. <laughs> a fair, just a little bit, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just I'm a recreational runner. <laughs> okay. Sweet, salty, or spicy? Ah, uh, sweet. And some and, and I'm in New Mexico, so spicy too. Like the green chili is you know a beautiful thing, but yeah, sweet is like my my downfall. Okay. I can eat a whole bag of Twizzlers in like 15 minutes. What is your favorite dinosaur or deep sea creature? Oh, my favorite deep sea creature is probably the octopus. They're fascinating. I absolutely love octopus. I have yeah, I don't, a I'm, I'm not sure session. I'd want to meet one in the dark, but yeah, there's they're, they're just amazing. They really are. I, I, I yeah, I wonder if there's a way to train them. Like, imagine all this, yeah, imagine all those tentacles. Like, if you had to, like, control their, their tentacles, like, how much more complicated that would be, like, training a horse. And, and multiple brains. I mean, like, yeah, what do you do with that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we don't know what yeah, side of the brain. super challenging. So yeah, much less which brain we're dealing with today. Okay. Yeah. Could a vampire detective enter a house if they had a warrant? Not if the house has the garlic clove and not if there's like some sunlight involved. Fair enough. Well, Ketchum, I'm going to award you 1,017 points, which makes you our high oh, scorer for this game of all time. If if you want to get really All competitive, right. I think you beat Jack by like a couple hundred points there at least. So you can send her a nasty text when we're done here. Um, and that high of a score entitles oh you to either an awkward silence or a genuine compliment. Your choice. 
Daniel, I love your mustache. It's the most groomed thing I've ever seen in my life. That's a compliment. No, no, I compliment you. Oh, you compliment <laughs> me? All right. Yes. Well, okay, well, didn't you say so? Okay, do, go ahead. <laughs> okay. I'm going to cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want your mustache to get complimented? I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't really think of it like anyway. I, it's I don't take compliments very well, and I, I suspect you're the same way. So, so let me try to make it awkward for you now. Uh, you're right about that. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I think characteristic of you that I really appreciate is I think you are a genuine, independent, and critical thinker. I read some of the things that you write and the perspectives and the point of views that you come up with, and you're never parroting something else or something that you heard somewhere, or this other person's opinion. You always have an original thought from a unique perspective, and it's very clear that what you're saying is your own, and I really respect that of you. I think very few people are actual original thinkers, and the world definitely needs more of them, so... That's what I'm going to wow. say is my compliment for you. Wow, Daniel. Uh, thank you. I'm totally blown away by this. Well, why don't you give us the 30,000-foot view of what it is that you do in the horse world? What I do is, it may not seem like much, but what I do is I make relationships, relationships between horses and their people a little bit better. And so, you know, mostly horses come to me for training or, and, you know, it's like, so then I, I deal with the horse and I explain things to the horse and then I work with the owner more and then I put them together and then I try to make the relationship better. And I always joke that it's like, yeah, it's like this horse has to spend a little more time on my couch, but, you know, generally things work out and I feel really good about that. Okay. Well, what, what percentage in your business are you working with horses like in training and what percentage are you working with people and lessons and so forth. Do you do equal amounts or heavily one way or the other? Or? I still ride all day, every day, just because that's what I love how to do. But I also work with people more these days because I really feel like I used to just send horses home after they were with me for like 90 days or whatever. And then they'd sometimes come back in exactly the same state as before I ever met them. And then I thought, now there's got to be a better way. So now I start working more with, with the horse and then the owner comes and I include owner lessons as many as the owner wants in my training. And so I'm trying to be really you know fair about that. And so, yeah, I do more teaching these days. I'm trying to teach better. I think that's like something that's in the horse world that's not as common as you know you you'd think that people can actually teach other people. So I'm really working on that. So yeah, I still do more writing than teaching, but I do more teaching than I used to. So do you do mostly teaching there at your barn or or do you hit the road and do clinics and that sort of stuff as well or or what? Yeah, I do some clinics. I, you know, I go to Colorado. I, you know, I, I go to out of state some, but uh, yeah, I'm still like people mostly bring horses to me. And then, you know, it's like I, you know, there's days when I hardly leave the arena, like horses just show up and I you know, work with them and I work with their owners and, and that's my day. And that's good. I like it that way. Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound too bad. Why don't you tell us how you got started in horses and how you, you sort of progressed to where you are right now. I know you had a fairly unique and kind of wandering journey. So why don't you tell us all about that? 
Well, I grew up in Germany and yeah, I was horse crazy as a kid. And so, you know, I pestered my parents for riding lessons. And so, yeah, they said, okay, fine. You can have one lesson a week. I was, I think, seven years old. And so, you know, I got that and I got started in the whole German dressage thing at the local riding barn. You know, it's in every village in Germany. And then, you know, pretty soon that was no longer enough. So when I was like nine or 10, I started taking my bicycle to the barn and started, you know, mucking stalls and, and cooling out horses for people and, you know, taking care of other people's horses. And then as a teenager, I was, uh, you know, um, hanging out at the barn a lot, you know, taking my bicycle there every day after school and I'd get on any horse nobody else wanted to ride. So I was already, you know, training horses if you, you know, want to look at it that way, though I didn't really know what I was doing, but people gave me more and more horses to ride. And then I was so, you know, I found dressage so incredibly boring you know, as a teenager like you do. And then I remember going to this expo uh, in Munich uh, when I was 12. And there I saw quarter horses doing reining and cow horse type things. And I was just so blown away. And right then I knew like that is what I really, really, really want to do. I mean, that is like you know, I had read all the books about dressage. I had read, read um, Museler and, and Steinbrecht and, and those German people like those are very dense texts. And, you know, I had plowed through them as a kid. And I was like, well, yeah, I kind of understand that there's lightness and harmony and there's like all those things that we want. But in my dressage lessons, I didn't really feel that it was just a lot of like more leg and more rain and more pushing and more pulling. And I was like, God, that that it's not supposed to be that way. I know it. I know it. And then I saw those quarter horses and something just clicked. I was like, okay, that's what it's supposed to look like. So then I patiently waited until I graduated from high school. And then I left Germany um, the next day and took a train to Italy and worked in a Western barn there where Western riding was a little bit more common there. And so then I saved up money for a ticket to New Mexico and I didn't have you know anything. I had a couple of contacts, a couple of people who said, "Oh, if you're ever in New Mexico, you know, look look, look me up." And you know, I didn't know Americans just say that. It's just a turn of phrase, right? But I took it seriously. I thought, "Oh, well, you know, isn't, isn't that nice?" And so, yeah, I had like you know, like you know, two hundred bucks and and uh, you know, a backpack with clothes, and I, I had a one way plane ticket, which in those days you could do. That was in 1990. And so I showed up at the 62 Bar Cattle Company in uh, Tomé, New Mexico, in uh, 1990, and they hired me. And then I had um, assistant trainer and working student jobs for different Western trainers. And then I also quickly figured out that the, the show horse world in the Western world, it, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's no lightness there. There's no harmony there. Or it's like, you know, I don't want to generalize, but, you know, the trainers I worked for, there was a lot of you know, uh, stuff that, you know, you really, I, I don't even want to talk about. I mean, I'm ashamed to admit I did some of it, like all the, the jerking and the pulling and the, you know, the rock grinder spurs and the ace promazine and, and whatnot. So I got away from that. And then I you know, worked for, for a couple of better trainers. And so I spent like five years apprenticing with different professionals and took, you know, something good and something bad from everyone. And then I went out on my own. And then I came back to dressage because I was like, okay, this is something every horse can do. This is something that's actually good for every horse with my improved understanding from having worked for all those Western trainers. Uh, one of my big influences when I was really young was Mike Kevill, who was going to Italy a lot when, when I was there. And I met him a few times and you know, worked with him a little bit. And I translated one of his Western horseman videos into German. So, <laughs> but yeah, Mike's a great guy. So he was one of my good mentors. But yeah, so that's my roundabout journey. And I still, you know, ride in Western saddles a lot. I still ride in dressage saddles, you know, about half the time. And uh, I just think it's all the same soup, basically. If it's done well, it's good. And Mike was actually about three or four guests back on the podcast. So Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I saw that. I need to listen to that one. He's a guy I've had a lot of respect for for a long time. I really have. Yeah, he's he's one of the good ones. For sure. Yes, ma'am. So... I really agree with you on that. In the that dressage really isn't this. 
its own special thing. It is supposed to just be training to help to develop a horse, and in theory, should uh, help any sort of horse in any sort of discipline do anything with more strength and balance and flexibility and, and all of that stuff. So it almost is surprising to me that you do kind of have some of the hoity-toity people on a pedestal that are condescending to others because it's it's really like a broad umbrella of training if it, it wasn't really in my opinion ever meant to be its own special specific thing it, it just you know was, was supposed to be all-encompassing and, and we've gotten here however we got here with it so you know i so agree with you on that i mean it's like yeah i've i've met so many people they look at me they look at me come with my little quarter horses or, or rescue ponies or whatever in, in my western saddle and they're like oh well that's not dressage and i'm like i beg to differ of course that's dressage <laughs> you know look at how well that horse is going and look at how how much better that horse is moving and you know look at how much happier that horse looks but yeah so i think today dressage really means two different things one the competitive discipline with the you know the, the 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 rhinestones on the brow bands and the tall boots and all of that and that can be you know well done or not just like any competitive discipline you know i, I have a lot of respect for people who do it well because I, I believe me it's not easy i've done it and it's really really hard but then it, to me mostly dressage is something much much broader and it's you know a way of helping every horse becoming a better athlete and a happier uh, riding partner and i figure if we choose to get on their backs that's the least we can do for them is to you know build the correct muscles so they can carry us you know with greater ease and to build their minds to where they understand what we want and how and, and teach them the language and, and learn their language and kind of meet there in the middle i mean that's really what dressage is well, my next question will seem a little contradictory, but uh, this is just how I wrote it. So you ride both English and Western, and they do have some differences, but they also intertwine, as we were just saying. So how would you say your your background working for the Western trainers and all has influenced you as a dressage rider? Well, you know, I think there's been some positive influences going both ways. To me, the biggest difference between the two traditions is really that, you know, the way people understand dressage, a lot of the, the hoity-toity dressage people are like, well, dressage is like a form of art. It's like done for its own sake. And you know, so the horse and the rider focus exclusively on each other, like in the Spanish, ride, Spanish riding school, there's no greater purpose. It's just like you ride just to ride and to, to make it as beautiful as possible and to, you know, to, to elevate it to an art form. But, and then the Western tradition, you know, that's one of the many things I love about it it's a working tradition so you generally as a rider it's like you know it's like it's you know you have something other than the horse to focus on so you have fence to check or you have a cow to track or you know or whatever and so then you have a job the horse has a job so you got to be able to depend on your horse as the working partner so to me the 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 takeaway from that for dressage is you know and, and there's a lot more overlap of course than what people think because you know dressage also came you know from the the the, the cavalry traditions and you know if you're riding into battle and of course you have something else to focus on than your horse and so you have to be able to depend on your horse too, I would think. But you know, to me, the, the big thing that you know, dressage riders can learn from the good Western riders is this concept of until further notice. Like you do your job, horse, I do my job. And until further notice, I can depend that you maintain that. I'm not always going to nag you and prod you and, 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 and squeeze you and, you know, do all these things. And uh, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's like a spectrum of communication. Like on one hand, you have like the Western horse that just does its thing and you can depend on that. On the other hand, you have dressage, which is like a much more involved kind of communication. And I think you, as a good rider, you got to be able to do both and horses got to know both. How often do you ride in one hand? 
Do you do mostly all in two hands or are you sometimes in one hand? Because to me, that's one of the big differences is in these horses that have something to do, often you need one hand. Or... Yeah, you need the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in the cavalry, you might want to have a shield or a sword or, or something along yeah, those lines. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just riding yeah. all around one another. And <laughs> so, um, so do you do very much of that? And do you feel like that influences uh, things? Absolutely, yeah. And so to me, that's again, that's the spectrum. Yeah, I do most of my riding two handed just because I don't really have anything else to focus on. I have the luxury of just being with my horses. And, and you know, it's like, I'm like, okay, we're here together. Let's figure this out. But then you like, you know, it's like with a green horse and you know this, like your hands are pretty far apart. And then as the horse progresses, your hands come get quieter and become closer together. And then the goal in dressage as in Western is to be able to do it one handed. And so, yeah, there are times when I, you know, I take my reins in one hand, like even in a snap line, like, all right, can I do this with one hand? Yeah. It, and so, and, and I do ride, you know, of, of some of my Western dressage horses. Yeah. They graduate to a curb and I, I do take the reins in one hand and I'm like, all right, how quiet are my hands really? How depend, like, am I cheating? Like if I have to use my hands independent from each other, that's yeah. So that's cheating. So yeah, I do that a lot to check to me, like the one-handed riding, like in dressage, that's a check how well-trained is my horse. And you should be in, in, in an ideal world on a really well-trained horse. You should be able to do all the stuff you do with two hands. You should be able to do with one hand. Yes, ma'am. I'm curious. To me, you seem like the sort of person that would really enjoy getting into the Garoka. Have you ever played with that at all? I haven't, but that's on my list of things I want to do. And there's a, a, a Garocha clinician. There's a working equitation clinician that uh, you know um, I've run into that I'm going to try to come to get to you know, to my barn and give a clinic. And yeah, I've I've handled a Garocha, but it's like I'm pretty inept at it. So <laughs> I need to get better. I've, I'm playing with the working equitation stuff and that's really fun. Uh -huh. But yeah, that's one of the things that I'm like, okay, that's like, it's like roping. I mean, I'm a horrible roper. So yeah, and that I've kind of given up on, but the garocha I want to do. I, I wish there was more working equitation in our area. That that looks like it would be a lot of fun. I, I could. Oh, that looks I, like a blast. I could certainly get into that. Yes, ma'am. Why don't we shift a little bit and get into the ultra marathon? So you've got this horse world and I know how obsessive you kind of have to be to make it through all of the apprenticing. It's it's not a nine to five, five days a week, kind of a, a gig. You, you're pretty much going to work your butt off all the time. And it's very, 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 very stressful. And so how did you get into running and, and all of that stuff? Well, that was, yeah, it's like, you're right. I still work six days a week. I mean, that's been the big struggle with running, you know, those long distances and that, you know, I should say an ultra marathon is like any distance longer than a marathon. So I've completed, I think, 2200 mile races now and I'm 53. So I hope I have a couple more in me. And eventually I'll cut down to shorter distances like 50 milers or marathons, but uh, it's hard to find the time. Now, I got into it um, when I had a midlife crisis about 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, I was in my early 40s and I was working in this um, very competitive dressage barn and this very competitive dressage setting. And I thought, oh, I finally arrived. I finally had a couple of nice warm bloods in training. And I thought I wanted to, you know, go up the levels and be your standard dressage trainer. And, uh, you know, and I uh, saved up money for every clinic I could go to. And I clinic with some some really famous people. And, and some of them made me feel you know, like dirt and, you know, others were very helpful but you know mostly it was just like I never felt good enough and I never felt like I was getting anywhere and I you know I was just you know uh, thinking my god if I'm not doing the horses any good then you know why am I 
still doing it. So I quit horses and then I went back to grad school. And then I started running uh, longer and longer because I just had all this surplus energy because for the first time in my entire life, I wasn't riding horses all day, every day. And I was like, what do I do now? And of course, the quitting horses part didn't last that long. You might have guessed that I was miserable. You know, I, was, I really, really missed them. And even my husband said, my God, find a horse to ride somewhere. It's like, I can't stand this. And yeah, so... <laughs> And then I came back to horses with a greater understanding of, you know, that I didn't want to be your standard dressage trainer. And that wasn't really my ambition at all. And then you know, I would never fit in. And that was OK. But the running I kept. And so I finished my first hundred mile marathon um, when I was 42 in Leadville. And, you know, I'm hoping to finish my ninth Leadville 100 uh, here in a couple of weeks. Um, but uh, yeah, I just kept that up because it's like a beautiful thing to balance out the horses. Like now my life is so people busy. There's so many people that come and watch their horses go and then want lessons. And there's always somebody there. It used to be just me and the horses at the barn. And now more and more, there's 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 humans there. And it's not that I don't like that, but I'm an introvert. And so I need to you know, head out you know, for a nice you know, solo run at the end of the day just to, to get my you know, get my equilibrium back. Um, so, you know, that, the other thing about the ultra marathons that relates to horses really well is that it's, you know, it's competitive, it's a sport, but I really learned running those races that it's a very, um, it's a much healthier kind of competition than the, the dressage or the horse shows. And yeah, I don't know how much showing you've done or whether you've enjoyed it, but, you know, it's like there's been times where I'm, I'm despairing because there's so much, you know, um, it's it's just not a very pleasant environment. There's all those people that are talking about each other and there's, you know, people who, you know, uh, I mean, it's just not a super pleasant kind of competition. Like if you do well, then then, then people, you know, like, like, you know, hold it against you. And if you don't, then they laugh about you. And then, you know, they, it was just, you know, it was just not very nice. And so then I got into the ultras and I really learned like, my God, now there's a sport like it's, yeah, it's, it's a competition, but it's not so much about winning. So in ultra marathons, what we do is like, we honor the last person that crossed is the finish line as much or more than the first person and so there's always been that tradition like in in leadville at the at the golden hour the last hour where people can finish you know everybody comes out and those people get all the cheers in the world and and it's like wow you know you just squeezed in just under the cutoff how, how cool is that now if horse shows could be a little more like that you know, it's like I remember when I did my first um, ultra marathon, my first 50 miler, it was an out and back horse. And there was this, you know, really famous at the time guy, um, Anton Kropitska, you know, flying down the mountain and you know, on his way to win the race. And I was still slogging up and barely halfway there. And he took the time to look at me and say, wow, good job. Keep it up. And I was so astonished that like the winner of the race would do that that somebody like Anton would acknowledge me who had never run a 50 mile race before. And I think horse shows can learn from that. And, you know, horse competition needs to be a little bit more like that or a lot more like that. I would definitely agree. I, I can honestly tell you, I do not go to a horse show when I go to have fun. It is definitely a, a working day for me. I've done a, a few ranch horse things that are a lot more relaxed and I could kind of enjoy myself. But uh, for the most part, it's not something I have a lot of fun doing exactly because of some of that stuff you have. the, you know, when you've been in the business, I guess you probably see it a little differently. You, there are some cutthroat stuff and you've always got the people that are cheating and trying to get away with something. And, and yeah, the, there's a lot of it that I don't care for in that regard. Uh, so I figured I'd be a clinician, and it turns out the clinician world has some of that in it, too. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it is what it is, right? 
So this will relate to a bigger topic, which we may or may not get into right now, but how do you feel that your upcoming through the levels in, in this business and all has been different for you? So you are a woman and you are also an immigrant. And so you, you know, you're a smaller percentage of this than, than what most would be. So do you feel like that has been a, a strength for you or a handicap or you've had the same sort of struggles just different struggles or how would you characterize your journey with those particular well that's a super interesting question daniel so first of all um i've always worked like not always but i've worked mostly for other women in the business and i have to say that you know a couple of them were more cutthroat and you know more jaded than the men i've worked for and with um and i think you know in the 1990s they felt they had to be like that uh which is too bad and i think that is slowly normalizing like right now i think i think okay so you know i'm in good company there's still you know there are times when i'm like okay if if i only had you know like like you know, uh, the mustache and the chinks and the confidence that comes with that i could charge more money but you know I, I think that's probably just me um the the immigrant thing that is an interesting one because you know that is i was um actually um i i was an overstay so it's like i just stayed on my tourist visa and then my tourist visa ran out so i was here illegally for a number of years and that was a really interesting experience. Uh, yeah, first of all, I think the, the horse industry would utterly collapse without illegal immigrants. Uh, yeah, that's just how it is. Um, second of all, I think this notion that people have that illegal immigrants take advantage of you know hardworking Americans, I think that's uh, yeah, not really uh, true because when I was an illegal immigrant, yeah, you know, like people took advantage of me. Like I was working at a barn where you know, they found out I didn't have papers and they're like, oh good, we can get away with paying you nothing and yeah, you know, we'll make you work seven days a week and we'll, you know, it's like we'll give you this, you know, like like broken down couch to sleep on and you can't say anything because otherwise we'll turn you in. So there there was that. Um, that made life a little more difficult. Um, my accent, my German accent, once I got back into dressage, that made life easier because people assume you know dressage <laughs> when you're from Germany. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it's like a give and take on a lot mm -hmm. of levels. And, you know, it's like, yeah. So th th there was that. I will say from my perspective, when I was apprenticing, I knew quite a few other apprentices and, and peers that were not from the United States. So Australians, Canadians, some people from Europe, and then of course, Mexicans and so forth. I will say that if you are ever on the receiving end of what Katrin described as her coming over here and someone wants to be in the horse business and they're not from the United States, there is a 95% chance you're about to hire one of the hardest working people you could ever hope to have at your barn. So. I can't think of a foreigner in the horse business that I came across that I didn't really like and that didn't absolutely deserve to be there and worked their butt off and, and so forth. All of the problematic people I can recall were Americans. <laughs> no question about it. <laughs> so, uh, so I'll definitely give a, a plug there. So I guess I'll ask this now because I've gotten into some of the other classical dressage people that I've had on, I've, I've always asked them which school they're from and how would they characterize it. And you obviously have the background of the German school, but have you 
reached outside that box and, and read some of the French and the Spanish masters and so forth and incorporated all of that. Like I would, I've seen you ride. You are a very technical rider. I, I mean, I could tell that three seconds in the way you were in rhythm with the horse and riding and all you did not have the veins popping out of your forearms, constipated look that I would characterize German dressage riders as typically having. So, so I don't, I would not <laughs> peg you as like, if you didn't speak with your accent and I watched you ride a horse, I wouldn't immediately go, Oh, that's a German schooler right there. You know? So, so what is your self-education background with regard to, to the schools or have you just thrown all that out the window and you just do Katrin and whatever Katrin wants to do. How, how do you go about that? No, no, no I, I, yeah, first of all, like I believe in dressage. I think it's a good way of writing. And there's like all those little, yeah, like internal, uh, you know, arguments that people have with the French school and the, and, you know, the Portuguese school and the German school, like that's only like, you know, it's like, yeah, that's a really interesting thing to follow. Um, and, you know, if you look at, you know, that if you study those old books that, you know, that, uh, that, you know, most of which I've read and, yeah, it's like I've read a lot like like Nuno Oliveira and I've read, uh, you know, this uh, Miguel Tavora, uh, you know, I think he moved to Australia, but you know, I really love his book. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, I've studied all those old Germans just because that's where I'm from and I can read the original and sometimes the translations are not very good. Um, so, you know, that said, you know, first of all, um, the, if you read those German originals, there's a lot of compassion for the horse, you know, in them. And it's not meant to be, you know, constipated looking with the veins popping, you know, and, and, and the, the biceps bulging. It's, it's you know, uh, that's you know, like a current uh, interpretation of it that, you know, I, I think is wrong. It's not supposed to be like that. <laughs> But yes, I agree it is. And then also, uh, you know, where, where, where the other things that I've read and gotten my education from are, you know, the Dorrance brothers and, and you know, all like everything I could find, find that's written about the Western tradition of writing. And, and that was very, very helpful. And I'm always looking for the common ground. I'm always looking for the overlap. And yeah, I've read some of Philip Carl's stuff and, you know, I agree with it to a point. And then I, you know, I've read a lot of, you know, uh, yeah, it's like, I just, you know, I just like to to read things about, you know, horsemanship and, and figure out, well, what does apply to all of us? It, it's really, you know, it's like, that's like where things get interesting for me. I'm looking at the common ground and it's a lot more extensive than I think a lot of people realize. The technical part, I think if you're a good rider or trainer, you've got you know, three areas that you got to be good at. So you got to have a good seat, first of all. And then you got to have feel, which is like the neglected stepchild because nobody, you know, I wrote a book about it, but it's, you know, it's really difficult to, to you know, even define what it is. And then the third one is technique, education, knowledge, you know, a coherent system of talking to the horse, a coherent language of the aids. And, and that you, know, you have to you know, get through you know, some formal education. I think. I mean, I know people that have all the feel in the world. Um, I work with a guy like that, but he has no formal education at all, and his seat is really crooked. And so, all the feel in the world doesn't really help him establish a great relationship with the horse to teach the horse much useful stuff. And so, that is too bad. Now, and, yeah, if you only have a good seat, but you don't know how to really use it and how to really use it to influence the horse and talk to the horse, well, then that's kind of a waste because, um, you know, it's like, if a, what are you going to do? It's so and then if you, you know, and there's a lot of systems of aids that, you know, as you probably know, they, they don't really lead anywhere. So I think it helps to, to study some of those classical um, you know, things and concepts and, and go from there. Like, you know, I've retrained horses that were trained in that rest and pleasure tradition and they were trained to do the spur stop. And I think that's just absolutely abhorrent because there's no forward 
And, uh, you know, the harder you use your leg and the harder you dig around with your spur, the slower they go. I'm like, okay, so there's a better way to do this. So that's like an aberration to me. So, yeah, I think technique is important, but never at the expense of feeling the horse. And that is something, you know, that you um, you learn. And that is something that, you know, I always work on and that I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get more creative with my students with because it's like they're like, okay, if I give an aid, if I put my leg here, if I put my right earlobe there, the horse should be doing that. And it's like, well, yeah, you can do all that. But, you know, most, most of the time the horse will say, you know, no, I'm not. And then where do you go? You've got to have a plan B. You've got to have like like an ongoing conversation with that horse and, and have that be constructive. And part of that is to feel and understand the horse. So, yeah, technique in and of itself isn't going to get you anywhere. But, you know, technique, if you don't have it, that's also not very good. Like you got to have, it's like, you know, so feel is the listening part where you say, okay, now I hear the horse, but then technique is how it, knowing how to respond and how to answer and how to like engage your, your side of the conversation. I, I love and the way you, one nor the other. Yes, I love the way you're organizing that. And I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, there have definitely been like some rodeo guys that I knew that got into breaking horses. And generally speaking, they had a pretty good seat, but they did not have good feel or technique at all and it wound up being a train wreck so you really do sort of have to balance that whole yeah uh, part of things and i also definitely agree with you i haven't read all of the old dressage books i've read some of them and i probably need to read a good bit more i've just i've been studying other things in the last five or eight years besides reading horse books really but i too sort of read those books and then you look out the window at what's going on in that world. Then you look back at the book and you look back out the window and you're kind of like, how did you all read this and came up with that? Like they, there's, there's, it seems yeah. to be a, a pretty big disconnect between what this means it's to me and what I, I see you doing out there and just like, I, yeah. So, but I kind of agree with you. I think that's more of a modern thing I, I don't think it, it is the tradition it is a, a perversion of the tradition that has gotten into uh hopefully it'll the pendulum will shift and it'll it'll get back into some more reasonable stuff i can remember someone had shared with me a video from an olympian if i named her everybody would know exactly who she was and and she was on her rest day with her horse going out for a little light hack and had the horse both reins pulled up behind the vertical for the whole <laughs> of the hack out there as they're supposed and i'm just like what are you doing like what what part of that is actually recuperative for the horse no. you know i mean well I see that's the thing yeah that's the thing like in dressage like i had this i have this one Marilyn training that you know it's kind of a retraining project and she had the wrong kind of dressage training and you know that was like the biggest red flag i got on her and you know uh you couldn't walk that horse off on a loose rein i'm like okay so we got to start there if that horse is not relaxed enough to walk off on a loose rein or like then trot and canter on a loose rein for that matter like there's no need to worry about contact connection or heaven forbid collection. It's like, you know, more, more important things to worry about, like just basic steering, basic relaxation, just like the, the basics. Like don't, yeah, don't, don't crank the, the neck round if, you know, there's, there's more important, there's much more important things than that. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. So let, let's say that you were to get a horse in for training and it was that sort of horse that's sort of been pushed in or forced into the mold and you sort of wind up with that glazed look in the eye where nobody's home anymore. Yeah. How do you go about 
building a connection with that horse where you can get them to come out of the shell and it might take you a month or two, but eventually you actually get to meet the real horse that was hiding inside there and, and make progress. What, what series of steps do you envision going through with that sort of animal? Well, you know, with that sort of animal, and I do get that a lot, it's like, you know, when their brains are a little bit fried and, and they get tense and anxious. So the first thing I do is I, I usually put a Western saddle on because it tends to be more comfortable for their back. And then, you know, I tend to, you know, it's like, you know, it's like once it's safe to get on the horse and just you know, say, here, knock yourself out. I, I throw the contact away. I'm like, here, you, you don't have to do that. And I just go back to the very basics, you know, just like the basic, you know, the, the training scale, the, the rock bottom of it is relaxation. If that's not there, well, then you got to go and find it. And so sometimes that's all we do until we find it. And until that is there, that's like, you know, otherwise your whole further training will be like a house of cards. It's like, boom, it just collapses. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be worth anything. If there is no relaxation, then that is, you know, you got to go get some. And if that means, you know, like, like doing some groundwork or putting the horse back in the round pen, starting the horse over, it's like, yeah, I usually go back to the Western saddle. I usually go back to the totally loose rein. I'm like, here, knock yourself out. There's nothing to brace and lean against. We're not going to do that. And it takes them a while but you know that is generally where we start and then from there we can revisit the other ideas and 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 you know make those a little more palatable for the horse but yeah it's a lot of times it says you go back to the relaxation you just go on on some very slow uh you know rides and trail rides and whatever you it's like you do some obstacles you, you know it's like you you teach the horse to go over the bridge and open the gate and just stand there while you do that and then the horse goes oh not every time a person is on my back means i have to be on and tense and and, and doing fancy things with my legs and, 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 my, and my nose uh, one of the worst experiences that i have had as a clinic in terms of of a, a participant challenging me was uh, a rider who was working, I believe, on third level dressage. They had, they were out of the training level, and they came to a clinic, and I wound up getting on the horse because it was just nervous, and you know it, it was going pretty badly. And so I started yeah. just picking up one rein and bending him around and trying to loosen his back up and get him to relax and some of these things. And this lady had a fit. Uh, she was like, no, no, you, if you're going to ride my horse, you need to have, you know, both reins in and you need to be holding him in and all this stuff. And it, it was just, it was one of those times that it really struck me that there was no concept that it was okay to back up. You know, if, if we had missed one of those more foundational steps yeah. that we need to back up and take care of that. And, and the way this lady was viewing it, it was all progress. There, there was never oh. a, we go back to first level and work on some of those things or anything. It was, no, this is a third level horse. And so it must be doing this, this, and this all of the time. And, and I was just thinking, you know, this horse, it was, the horse was getting dangerous. That was why I had gotten on him. I, I could foresee. Yeah, no, it would. I mean, that sounds this, terrible. Yeah. This was going to be a blow up here before long, but there was just utter resistance from her on backing up or doing anything outside of what she considered a third level horse should be doing and to me that's if you're riding a green horse at all you had better be really good friends with the concept of backing up to more fundamental steps over and over and over and over again oh, yeah. until all of that over, gets and, and that's like even with a really well-trained horse 
yeah, I've, I've got a horse now that's schooling the tempi changes in the working periods. And he's amazing. He's a little quarter horse. He's the best guy ever. But, you know, he gets tense. He's got some baggage. He's had some bad Western training years ago. So you know, whenever he does like, all right, we'll take a step back. We're going to do whatever. We're, I make sure that we do other things, that we don't just drill the movements of whatever level we're schooling. It's like the older I get, the more I'm like, no, you got to play with something and then get something. It's like, even if you don't get what you were asking, I was like, all right, well, let's revisit that again in a while. Let's revisit that again tomorrow. And you make much more progress that way. But yeah, that is in dressage. There is that mindset of more is always better. And, you know, it's like if we practice it 50,000 times, then it's going to get better. And, and horses have different ideas. I mean, they're not tennis balls. You know, they're not, it's, it's not going to work very well if you do that. And then also that notion of contact that you're describing, it's like, oh, no, you always got to have both reins tight. No, you don't. You just do not. I mean, one of the, 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 the checks for is my contact correct? And I do that a lot. Can I give it up? Can I go on a trail ride on a loose rein? Can I, you know, just let the horse stretch forward and down when I lighten my seat and let the reins get longer? Can I just extend my hands forward and the horse, you know, if I don't change it, anything else, will the horse just keep doing what he's doing until further notice? Like, it's not about like, if you give the contact up and the horse starts running off or falling on his face, that wasn't very good connection. That that wasn't correct. So then you got to go back to the drawing board. So I want to take us but, yeah, back. Yeah, I know exactly what you're describing and it drives me crazy. I'm going to take us back in our conversation a little bit when we were talking about sort of the different schools and all and and the texts and, and how they describe writing. To me, really, the only thing that describes the way that I'm going to ride a horse is what the horse is giving me in terms of feedback. So I don't necessarily have... Yeah an agenda or if I have an agenda, like you might watch me ride one horse and I look pretty firm on him. I'm kind of kicking his butt all around. And then the next horse I get on, it seems like I'm letting him get away with a whole lot of stuff. And, and you're kind of going like, what well, is this guy bipolar? What, what? like he, that was, there was no consistency there in the way he handled those two horses, but this horse needed me to handle him this way because of what he was telling me. And the other horse needed me to handle him this way so one of the theories that i have is that the different schools of dressage were more formed by the types of horses that they had in those times than on maybe the opinions of the masters they were i believe they were masters oh, for the most part and they were just writing and responding according to what the group of horses they were dealing with needed them to be and it wasn't a time period where borders were crossed and bloodlines were were crossed you kind of were going to spend your whole if you were in the french school you were going to ride thoroughbreds pretty much or some fairly you know finer bone more refined type horses and in the german school you were going to be on these big powerful tanks with cannon bones the size of your arm and you know and it was just a very different mindset that was required but it was required because the horses were different not because the people were so different i guess you, yeah does that makes sense i to think you? you're absolutely right about that yeah that makes total sense i've thought about it along the same lines it's very similar actually because yeah it's like you read the french school and it's like yeah so on the type of horse that you know is a little bit lighter and is a little bit uh you know uh, less substantial and then has less of a tendency to to lean and brace but more of a tendency to be anxious like yeah that makes more sense than the german school yeah that's for those horses that have maybe more of the the, the draft in them like those mm -hmm. older type more it's like yeah 
So there, you know, it's like what the Germans prescribe is like you drive the horse in contact and then they kind of give to themselves that that makes sense for them. So with a horse like that, yeah, I would probably do that. But, you know, I like the way you're describing that. And when I'm riding, that's what I'm always, you know, doing too. And people tell me, it's like, oh, you rode that horse differently from that horse. How come? It's like, well, you know, it's like the first thing I get on the horse or I, I, I'm with the horse. I observe the horse. Like, okay, so what does this horse need from me today? How can we make this you know, ride a tiny bit? How can we finish a tiny bit better? a tiny bit more balanced, a tiny bit, you know, uh, you know, with a tiny bit more understanding than before the ride. And that's really the only goal. It's like, all right, how do we get there? And that really varies. And to me, the training scale that everybody always talks about, that's more like this, uh, you know, this scaffolding that keeps you honest. And, and, and it's like more like this thing is like you go up, you go down. It's like, okay, so it's like you try to, you know, you play with something more advanced. You're like, okay, so then we're, we're losing the straightness. So then we get that back. And, you know, it's not like this set in stone where you're like, boom, 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 I climb it. No, it's like you always go a little up, a little down. You always revisit, like, are the basics still there? And then like, if they're there, then maybe you go a little bit up again, but then you always have to revisit the bottom line. Layers. But yeah, I think that that makes a ton of sense. And I really like the way you described that. So if you could, that's what custom- I do all day. <laughs> yes, ma'am. If you could custom build a horse, kind of like a build a bear workshop or something, what kind of horse are you looking for? Do you like them a little hotter or a little, little more stoic? What, what is your particular preference? You know, my favorite horses, you know, they're usually pretty complicated just because that's what I get a lot. I like my horse to be sensitive. I, I really like a horse that's engaged with me. That I say, you know, say, that's why I really like the mindset of the quarter, quarter horse. Like, I don't want to generalize, but some of the best horses I've ridden were quarter horses and are quarter horses. Or, you know, some Iberians that too brave that is like, okay, what else can we do? I can do that better. Like, you know, most of the Wamblas I've worked with, honestly, it's, you know, they, they don't really do that. They're like, okay, well, we've been out here 45 minutes. I think it's time to be done. And, you know, the quarter horses, they're like, all right, we can do that. We can do that even better. And so then you have to, you have to be the one who stops them and says, okay, now it was good. Now we're going to do something else. But yeah, that is the kind of horse that I would design, like a nice, well-balanced about, uh, you know, maybe 15 hand, like nothing huge. You know, a horse that's like, you know, light off the, the light on the front end and powerful in the hind end. And, you know, a horse that's just a joy to work with. All right. Well, I think capturing yeah, them. I'm is- a big advocate for horses in Versailles. I think a lot of the, the, the adult amateurs. I think I lost you. Uh, yes, ma'am. Okay, there Can you, you hear go. Me? I can hear you now. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Yeah, now I can hear you again. Okay. So uh, we lost you yeah, around the you. time you were saying you were a big advocate for quarter horses in dressage. Yeah, in dressage. And yeah, it's like, by the way, now I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm showing more Western dressage than classical. I think that's like a more inclusive, more welcoming sport for, you know, a wider variety of people and horses. And I appreciate that. But, you know, it's like to me, a quarter horse is like a really, really versatile, really, uh, you know, usable dressage horse. And, and they they get, you know, they they get kind of, you know, laughed about by, you know, dressage enthusiasts. And I've, I've shown up to big clinics with a quarter horse. And I'm like, you know, don't laugh about this horse. He can like, like, you know, after your horse is quit for the day, he's, he'll still be out there trying really hard for me. So, yeah, I think a lot of the, the the amateurs I work with, they would be better off on a quarter horse than on the, you know, on the very expensive imported horse that they think they need to have. I'm going to tell you a little funny story. My personal horse is a quarter horse gelding named Curly, and he's all cowbred bloodlines and everything. So he's not very big. He's not a real heavy. He's not as stout as most of the 
cowbred quarter horses. I always describe him as a very feminine gelding, very fine boned and, and all of that. And I was at ah, an expo. I know what you I was at an expo and it was it was me doing a demonstration and then a dressage lady doing a demonstration and I'm back there brushing my horse off and she comes up to me and says, This is a nice yearling that you've brought here. What is he? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yearly. <laughs> He's like 14 or something like that, you know. And so and she wasn't joking. She she really thought I had, you know, brought a pony or something. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, then I went and did a bridalist bareback demonstration on him. So so there, stick that where your yearling goes. <laughs> I think it is about time for our, our sponsor for this episode. Catherine. And this is a, a sponsor that was with us a while back. And when they heard that I had a lovely lady such as yourself on, they wanted to come back and sponsor an episode again. So this episode is sponsored by Long Piers Eatery. Ladies, you've endured a lunch or two with your husband or boyfriend at Hooters or Twin Peaks. Now it's your turn. At Long Piers, you'll be served by a shirtless Viking. Our Vikings are always at least six foot two and must keep a strict skin and cuticle care regime. They come in your choice of tall, dark, and hairy chested or tall, blonde, and waxed. Enjoy a glass of wine with our complimentary heated blankets and soft slippers. Be visually entertained by our playful cats who have the run of the restaurant, our decorating staff who switch out decor hourly, or simply watch your significant other as he does his best to not make eye contact with your half-naked eye candy. Men get white wine half off on Wednesday and red wine half off on Friday with an approving nod from you to your Viking that he listened to all of the details of your week without offering helpful and pragmatic solutions to your problems. He gets a free dessert if he managed to follow the ever-changing people <laughs> throughout your stories that the pronoun she revolvingly referred to. Every salad comes with complimentary french fries that he cannot touch and it's a go cup that we fully intend you to drink 10% of and then leave in your oh, husband's so cup cool. holder. <laughs> Long Piers Eatery, made for women and where you can order a man to make you a sandwich. You can always find us between Hobby Lobby and a way overpriced coffee shop that has no understanding of how to represent cup sizes. So that's our sponsor. I hope you like this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Daniel, I just wish that was a real thing and I would go to it. I'm like, yeah, it's like, I, I need a Viking serving me wine. <laughs> I think a few of these. Uh, I think these, that's great. Yeah, these things need okay, to be real business ventures. <laughs> right, right. It's like, no, I think you're on to something there. I think I was like, yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I think we need to do that. <laughs> um, There's a shortage of six foot two Vikings, though. I mean, that might be a problem. There probably is. Yeah, you might have to be in a college town or or something like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to put out like like a casting call. I mean, it's it's doable. But yeah, it's like I think you're onto something there. If you ever quit horses, that would be a great venture. <laughs> well, we were talking just a little bit about the types of horses that you're riding and all, and I just wanted to ask, I know this is going to be a very generic question, but what would you say is is sort of the average or the most common horse 
that you're dealing with in your business and what are you typically trying to do to improve them? For instance, I think most people, when they hear dressage, they're thinking of, you know, the higher level pre-St. George horses and airs above the ground and that sort of stuff. But there's way, way more training level horses out there than anything else. So, so what level of horse and all are you typically dealing with and trying to advance them to in your business? Well, um, so, you know, my horses come from all sorts of different backgrounds and people usually find me because, you know, either they've come off their horse, you know, or they, they're having like relationship problems with the horse. They feel like they don't understand their horse. They don't know where to go or they're disillusioned with the regular dressage and they don't know what's wrong and, but they know something is. So yeah, I get horses that are like former race horses, former show horses, uh, you know, that, that uh, trail horses, you know, horses that have de developed bad habits, you know, some rescue horses. And so then my first job is always to see, okay, where can I meet? this horse and what does this horse need from me and so then you know it's like so then i just you know build the basics from there and, and then if we go into some real dressage work that's great like i said i've got a couple of horses now that are schooling like a lovely lateral stuff and flying changes and whatnot but before that i mean most of my horses are nowhere near that and they just you know i just have to see okay how can i uh you know help you understand that i mean no harm how can i get you uh, you know to lose the anxiety how can i you to uncurl your neck how can i get you to understand that leg comes and you go that sort of thing so it's pretty basic stuff okay but yeah it's like what keeps life interesting is that they get horses from so many different worlds and they've learned all those different things and so then that's another part of figuring out like okay where does this horse like yeah you know, where is this horse coming from and so it helps that i've you know i know you know what a roping horse goes like and i know what it was what a western pleasure horse goes like and what they've learned and where they come from and i can help you know, help them understand that there's something a little bit different and more consistent out there. Do you remember some of those first times where you came across some of those odd queuing systems and all like like the spur stop on the Western Pleasure Horse and you're riding along and you're just kind of like, what what in the hell is going on here? This is not how this horse is supposed to ride. And then you have to figure out what that there's actually a queue in place here and 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 all of that or have you have you come across many of these horses that are cued did it take a lead with the inside leg instead of the outside leg those sorts of things yeah i've i've come across plenty of horses that only have one lead and <laughs> <laughs> i've come across the super stop kind of horses and then I've come across horses that have only done walk and trot and a big fast trot and like out on the trail and then they've never cantered with a rider on and so now they're like in their teens and the, the owner says well I would like for my horse to learn how to canter so you know then we go out and in, into a big field and maybe do that over time but yeah there's all sorts of issues it's like that's what keeps life super interesting I say I'm never bored there's always <laughs> something new to discover then you get horses that have been ridden in tie downs and, uh, you know, standing martingales, and then you take it all off and then you have this horse that's all over the place. And then, you know, and the owner's getting really worried. And it's like, no, no, it'll, it'll be better. Just, you know, trust me on this. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of that, but yeah, it's like over the years, you know, I've, I've, I always think, well, there's, there's nothing I haven't seen, but then there's, all, there's always something I haven't seen. Yes, ma'am. Like I worked with a gated horse recently that, uh, you know, I have been taught to, uh, you know, like, like the fast, the harder you pull, the faster the horse goes. And that was interesting. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting. Yeah, that, that can be its own world for sure. I, I have definitely okay. seen some <laughs> some odd things in the gated horses. Uh, that It does have, like everything else, the, 
the cream of the crop trainers are good horsemen that that understand and, and would be appreciated by anybody else but yeah there's a level in there of of stuff that makes me scratch my head for sure with that group <laughs> um so what would you say is the average horse person that you're dealing with are, are there more uh mid to lower level intermediate and beginner riders or, or do you have very many riders that are been doing this at a pretty high level for a while or are you having more problem riders that may have traumatic experiences they're trying to work through and all who sort of is your customer i guess my customer is um i would you know um yeah that's easier than the average horse because my horses there's so much variety there my average customer is somebody who's looking for something that's you know maybe not standard dressage but dressage based that's looking for a better relationship with the horse and you know may or may you know somebody who is not necessarily super competitive and looking to show but somebody who wants you know to to ride better and to understand their horse better and you know and that i can work with like if somebody says oh i want my horse to just go up the levels and without any concentration for the horse and whether the horse really wants to do it i'm like yeah i'm probably not your trainer there's other people who specialize in that but that's not me um and so yeah most of the people that i deal with they're not maybe necessarily uh you know serious show riders but they're very serious about wanting to become better horse people and that's the common denominator they're very serious about that and so that's what i help them become I can certainly appreciate that. I, I don't have that many people that are competing in my customer base either. What I, I think a lot of people wouldn't understand is that the people that compete in show are a, just a tiny slice of the horse world. I think it's somewhere between 55 to 60% of horse owners are trail riders. They're the largest group by far out there in the uh, the horse world and the, the people that are showing competitively or racing or whatever they make up only about a quarter of the actual horse group out there so there are way more people to serve that are not in the competitive world than that that are chasing that that monkey i guess i would say i am scrolling on my phone here trying to find an article that you wrote here a little bit ago and i'm not I'm, I'm i'm doing this poorly but as i recall you were sort of talking about balance versus collection and sort of getting into that world and i think those can be a pretty misunderstood topics so why don't, why don't you give us some of your thoughts oh, yeah totally so there's a lot of components to balance so the first thing you know i look for is uh, like mental balance so a horse has to like for me like the my favorite de definition of balance is really the you know the sweet spot between two extremes and there is that mindset in the horse world is like well if a little bit is good more must always be better well you know that is hardly ever true like i'm more like the story of goldilocks and the three bears that applies a lot more to horses where it's like yeah it's like they, they, you gotta look for the just right that's usually somewhere in the middle and so balance is, you know, is part of that. So there's like a mentally you want the balance between a horse that's, uh, you know, checked out um, or super anxious. So you want a horse that's relaxed but alert. You want a horse that's in the frame of mind that's ready to learn. 
uh, but uh, you know, not overly worried about it. Then physically, you want the balance, like in in the way of going, you want the balance between a horse that's you know willing to go forward but not rushing. So you want to dial that into where it's like, okay, so you know, this is like a, a balance between the the desire to go forward and the relaxation that we've just worked on. So there's got to be that and this like lateral balance, like the left horse going to the left should feel like the horse going to the right, and that's like not nearly as simple as it may seem, as I'm sure you understand. But that's something that I always work on with every horse. It's like the right horse and the left horse should eventually feel like the same horse. So that's the kind of balance. And then eventually, with all of those balances in place, then you get to that uh, longitudinal balance back to front where you power up the hind end and you have the horse balance between the driving aids and the and the half halting aids. And then you have the, the, the forehand that gets slighter and the hind end that takes more weight and the joints and the hindquarters that bend a little bit more. And that is then everything becomes light and effortless. And that is totally collection but people you know throw that word around so much and it really bothers me they're like oh now collect him up a little bit and they just mean like pull his nose to his chest and make him go slower that's not what collection is at all <laughs> yeah that's not that at all i mean collection is something that you always work on but never like separately like collection i always say it's like you know it's, it's like like fruit that falls from a tree like this really like juicy peach that that you know is growing on this tree and you're like wow and then you can get it and it's no effort at all but you know first you have to grow the tree and you have to water it and take care of it and it takes years so yeah collection isn't something that you can say okay now i collect the horse okay done it's not like that at all and you know when collection doesn't happen and then it just becomes pulling and pushing well then you go back you know down the training scale and you're like all right what do i not have do i need more straightness do i need more strength do i need you know do do i need less of this and more of that like you know what do i need to do and then you try again but yeah you never just say okay now i collect the horse god that would be so nice and simple <laughs> it, it, it's really not an action that the rider performs that that's that's absolutely true i've no. always had exception with that 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 phrasing uh as well that, that's a dead giveaway that the that we're not speaking the same language the other person and i when uh when that that starts coming out one other thing i always like to ask the higher level riders that i interview about is the concept of straightness because i think that is also something that is highly highly misunderstood and i think the same way collection gets conflated with pulling back the reins and drink, drawing the chin to the chest to me straightness when people talk about it what they really mean is stiffness and i don't think straightness and stiffness are at all the same yeah thing. and that's yeah so go ahead not at all not at all so to that i always yeah, straightness is like to me like the there's uh, you know the German school talks about first degree bend and second degree bend. So to me, straightness isn't straightness like a two by four. I mean that would be the stiffness you're talking about. That's not straightness at all. So straightness means like basic body alignment, like between the guardrails of a road. So like like with the young horse, the guardrails are going to be pretty far apart, and then as the horse progresses, the guardrails are going to be closer together. And then the straightness just means like like you're like the horse's chiropractor, so you want the whole entire horse to stay between those guardrails. And so then uh, you know you eventually get into to this notion of second degree bend, which is when you can narrow the tracks of the hind legs and drive that, that inside hind leg a little closer under the body. And then you have that famous phrase, inside leg to outside rein. Well, that's where 
when, when that applies. And then the like the simple bend of a circle, which to me that is straightness on a curved line or on a straight line. And that, yeah, that that that's a collecting movement. And you can start chipping away at that if the horse is relaxed and otherwise ready. But yeah, straightness means a horse that bends evenly left and right, that doesn't bend the neck more than the rest of him. A horse where the front feet follow the hind feet, that is straightness. But it's it doesn't mean just on the horse is always on a straight line. It doesn't mean that at all. It means it the be... horse can develop power because the horse isn't, yeah, the horse isn't cheating. Like a lot of the horses that are, you know, most of the horses that are young or green or, you know, like have been ridden incorrectly, they're, they're crooked. And you, you know that it's like, you've got, got like, like one of my dressage clinicians that I rode with years and years ago, she compared it to her two ex-husbands, the two, the horse's two hind feet. She said, yeah, one's the lazy ex-husband, you know, and, and, and that one never pays the child support on time. And that one, we always have to call and, 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 and nag and, and, and be on his case. And, and then the, the, the other ex-husband, like he's always on the ball and he can always depend on him. And that's the good hind leg. And then there's the lazy hind leg that always wants to step a little too far to the inside. And that's something that seems very nitpicky, but that's some, that is something that is always at the back of my mind with straightness. And it starts by keeping the horse between the guardrails where you don't have one hind leg that's always stepping a little to the inside or the outside. I like that. Too. Does that make any sense to you? No, it definitely does. One thing I have, I have one of these articles. I don't, I don't know if if you do this, but sometimes I start writing something and I get hung up and, and I have an article right now that's probably three years old and it's maybe three quarters of the way being finished. And every once in a while I pick up on it and, and I, I work on it a little bit more, but I haven't figured out quite how to say what I'm trying to say yet. But the title of it is the most important leg of your horse. And to me, the obvious answer to that is the outside hind. It is sort of what, what controls everything. And when we really get to an advanced horse that is developing collection and, and really has some power and drive to them, to me, the defining characteristic of that horse is a horse that doesn't leak the outside hind. And I've kind of always thought that was what that saying inside leg to outside rein is meaning that outside rein is sort of the exterior boundary of your horse and you can push up against it but they don't evade the boundary and go beyond it they they hold that outside hind in the ground and it kind of becomes yeah, a rail yeah. so yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I always tell people, like, imagine you're going around a round pin, and so your your outside rein and leg that is the round pin, the the wall of the round pin, and then your inside aids get the horse as close as possible to that round pin, but not through the wall of the round pin. Like that's you know, and but of course to do that, first you got to get the horse to move off the inside leg, and to get the horse to leg yield, and then you establish that nice elastic boundary. I mean, you know, some of my students that are you know coming from the the you know a lot of formal dressage lessons, and they've heard outside rein, outside rein so much that they pull on the outside rain which is not what you're supposed to do at all and it's another concept that drives me crazy it's not about pulling back on the outside rain it's just about having that welcoming boundary that you help the horse found find like a child would find an easter egg you're like look there it is like let's go to it and the horse is like wow there's a boundary that's cool and so yeah i think of it more more that way but you're exactly right so you have that that boundary in place like once everything else is in place and then you get to push the inside hind leg closer to that boundary to where the the tracks of the inside hind legs really narrow and, and there's no evasion and then the hind legs can step more under instead of like over to the side and, and and then the back can get more engaged and everything feels just amazing i don't know why i've never watched you work courses at home but just sort of knowing your personality a little bit and your your own you seem to do your own thing how 
how strictly do you stay with the classical exercises and the classical training scale? Like, are you doing a lot of shoulder in, haunches in, travers, rim bears, and, and sort of those exercises for two years? Or are you kind of pulling a little of the Western stuff off and flirt playing around in the middle of the arena and, and, and doing some other things like we would be doing? Or how, how do you typically organize your your rides in terms of what we would think of as strictly classical and she's doing her own thing now. Well, you know, some of my, uh, you know, some of the, the strict writers, they would definitely say, oh, she's doing her own thing and she's not a dressage writer at all. I disagree. I think I, I do a lot of the classical exercises, but I structure my rides a little differently. So, yeah, I do get to like the shoulder in, the haunches in. I mean, those are genius exercises that help any horse become more balanced. And it's a lot of fun to get there. And, you know, it, it's a it's a lot of joy, like to finally get like a nice half pass on a horse. The horses get really into it, too. And then, you know, you start like the flying changes and also like collecting and extending the gates, like a little bit of shortening, a little bit of lengthening. It starts there. And so, you know, I play with that because that's, you know, to me, it's like so. Um, I, I always say it's like you know, the horse has to first learn to do yoga and, you know, say um and relax and, you know, really stretch and, and, and be like totally, you know, like like in like a good mental space. And then from there, we add the weightlifting, we add the power training. And so then, of course, when tension creeps in, then we go back to the yoga. So it's like, you know, I always shift back and forth between those two. So when I feel like, okay, the horse is, you know, like getting tired or bored or, or confused, well, then I go do something totally different. Then I might, you know, I have a trail course set up and then I might go and, 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 and do some, some side passing over a log or walk over the bridge or up on the tires or whatever. I might go for a little trail ride before I start a work session. I try to not, you know, drill any exercises. So I do the classical exercises and, and I do always have the training scale in the back of my head but i am a little more creative like when i need to reestablish relaxation when i need to say okay now you know this is enough of that then i'm like okay well there's other things we can do like you know try to open and close the gate for example and then we go back to doing something you know more dressage does that answer your question yes ma'am. i i too but yeah the, the, the shoulder enhances and all that they're great exercises i recommend those <laughs> it, it has taken me a long time to embrace the shoulder in I have a very strong dislike of untracking of the hindquarters too much. And I have to actually give Patrick King credit for one, one of the things that he said that just kind of struck me was about haunches in is about strengthening the inside hind leg. And we're putting it in such a position that it's required to do most of the work for the horse. And we've swapped sides and here we have helped to, to strengthen the horse to allow him to do other maneuvers so it's the, the haunt the uh shoulder in is not the goal it is simply a tool toward a goal um but it, i really really do not like watching a horse or or like the feel of riding a horse doing that for a long time um some of the other maneuvers travers and rin bears i I'm, I'm a big fan of that particular one for whatever reason i have just always hated so i will ask Ooh. you now do you have a particular classic exercise that you hate but wish you didn't hate or would be embarrassed to admit that you absolutely hate this one you got to have a least liked and a most favored so what are your least liked and most favored of the classical exercises 
Um, well, you know, it's like I'm a big fan of the shoulder. And first of all, and I encourage you to revisit that because really it's not, you know, it really is to me like it gives you access to the power of the horse's inside hind leg, like on a straight line, like wherever. So it's like it's a genius exercise if you if you really think about it. So, yeah, I do the shoulder in a lot. And then, of course, you complementarily do the, the haunches in and the half pass. I mean, I absolutely love those. Now, you know, the exercises that, you know, I, I dislike um, is... Um, well, there aren't really any I, I totally dislike. There's just some I'm not very good at, like the, the really more advanced ones. Like I've played with half steps. I've never, you know, I've ridden a couple of schoolmaster horses in my life. I'm not saying I'm an expert at teaching a horse to pee off and passage. I would like to. But to me, that is like a lot of what I've seen. And I would like to learn how to do it better. But a lot of what I've seen in clinics is just like, well, you know, it's like, so you're basically teaching the horse go, but don't go. And then the horse gets confused. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, I've seen really really good people do that, but most people aren't that good at it. And yeah, that's something that I'm not really willing to mess with until I know how to, you know, do it better and without all the tension that keeps in. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like I, I've seen people do, you know, try to teach a horse to pee off and it's basically, it's just teaching the horse to fear the 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 mm -hmm. the, the person standing behind him with the whip. I mean, that's, yeah, that, that can't be the point of it. And I, I know what the point of it is in my head. I just don't trust myself to go there. Yeah. I, I would think that's one of those things like, uh, I'm I'm more in the colt starting world, but anybody that does start a lot of colts and gets really good at it is going to look back at those first three or four that they started and just realize that it was a train wreck. <laughs> you know, I would imagine even for really high level. Oh my god! I, <laughs> I oh think god. yeah, the first three or four horses. I you, you know, there's I, I yeah. I think the first three or four horses you teach the pee off to is probably the same deal. They're just going to have to survive it and you're going to get better. And, and the 12th horse is going to, going to maybe be okay. But I think there's no way the first few <laughs> is going to turn out really well. You're going to screw them up. There's just no, two, no way to avoid it. It's going to happen. <laughs> Did I lose you? Learn more about that and get to that level. But I know what you're talking about with starting cults. I often wish like I spent like, you know, like 20 years or so mostly starting cults for other people and I made a living that way. And now I'm like, God, I wish I could go back to these horses and apologize for all the things that I did that I would never do now and the stuff I used that I would never use now and, you know, and tying their noses to the, to the back of the saddle and leaving them there. I'm like, God, what was I thinking? You know, but everybody I worked for did it, so I did it too, and I didn't think anything was wrong with it. And yeah, I mean, it just yeah, it takes you a long time to figure out certain things. Like, does that really serve my horse? But yeah, I wish I could have a time machine and then travel back and then tell those horses, look, I'm really, really sorry. <laughs> well, it's it's all part of it. A lot of them get the benefit of all you've learned, so it it's just uh, the way that it goes that a few of them get the flip side of that while you are learning. So then that's okay. In in my experience, at least with the typical customer that I'm dealing with, I feel like a lot of them need acceptance or permission to not be very good yet. I, I see a lot of people that are apologizing they're, they're working on something and they're struggling with it and they get a little frustrated and they start looking at me and, and they start apologizing and, 
and I'm going, you have nothing to be sorry for. You know, this is this is difficult. It's You're going to not do very well at it for a little while, and then you're going to not be as bad. And, you know, it's going to be a while before you're actually anything we could call good at this, and that's to be expected on the front end. So it's perfectly fine that you're not good yet. You're not supposed to be good yet. Do you have a, a similar uh, setup with your customers? You find that that they oh, sort of absolutely. need permission? Absolutely. Yeah, they need permission and they need reassurance that it's okay that I'm not judging them for not being perfect. And that's, I think, rampant in the dressage world where there is, you know, that, that you know, uh, ill-conceived perfectionism that, you know, you know, really doesn't work that well. Where it's like, oh, well, this could be better. This could be better. Saying, okay, for today, this is good enough. Like, like, like. I always encourage them to look back, like look back to where you and your horse were six months ago and tell me we haven't made great progress. So I'm really trying in my barn to cultivate an atmosphere of acceptance and inclusivity and mutual support. And, you know, when people get discouraged and they do and they think that progress is slow or they, they're they not making progress. And then I always say, look, next time I take a lesson with Nicole, next time Nicole, you know, reminds me of all the things I'm doing wrong, I invite you to come and stand on the fence and you will realize that we're all working on the same thing, Maybe it's slightly different junctions in the road, but it's really, it's, it's, you know, I go through the same thing. I drive home from the barn a lot of the time thinking, my God, I charge people money for this. I completely suck today, you know, and then the next day is better. I mean, it's, you know, that's just life. And that is how we learn. I mean, it would be a lot worse if, you know, the, the people that I despair with are the ones who, you know, who think they know everything and they have those preconceived notions and that, that they have nothing to learn and all they're looking for is reassurance. That's a lot harder, but I get that a lot more rarely. I get a lot more common what you're describing, you know, people who think like, oh my God, you know, I'm just a trail rider. I don't know anything. And I'm like, no, actually, you, you know how to steer and stop your horse. You know how to walk and trot your horse. That's a lot. That's more than a lot of people know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't really know what to do with the people that think they've got it figured out. I can't imagine being at a place where I'm not being critical of what I'm doing and, and seeing small mistakes that uh, like one thing I try to be pretty honest about because I don't, I don't hear many clinicians saying this is that I misjudge horses all the time. As, as many cults as I've started, I still have moments every day where I thought he could take that and I pushed him a little, you know, the reaction I got was more than I was expecting. I wish I hadn't pushed quite that hard in that moment or, or, or whatever, where I kind of misjudge a horse a little bit. And that should be a cardinal sin of someone that does that for a living. But the reality is we all misjudge horses all the time. Just maybe the degree I misjudge yeah, is, is a little slighter than someone else, you know, but it still happens where I, I need to adjust and learn. And that horse told me new information. I thought I had him figured out, but it turns out there's a little more complexity to him than I thought there was or whatever. And so we are always trying to improve. Uh, one of the sayings I really like is that what you struggle with today will one day be your warm up. You know, a year from now, yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, you'll still be struggling, but it won't be the same thing you're struggling with today, hopefully, right? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. But I think 
you know, it's like, that's a really good thing you just said, because there's so many clinicians who would never admit they make a mistake. And to me, that's like a big part of what I do. It's like, okay, well, I'm trying this. Okay, well, that didn't work. All right, let's try something else now. I mean, that's a big part of, I mean, it's not a hard science, they're horses. So we're like, always like, okay, so how can I, you know, maybe make this a little more clear? Okay, well, that obviously the, the, the horse, you know, didn't really respond to that. So let's do it in a different way. And it's the same with teaching. I mean, there's all those things where I'm thinking, oh, God, I could have done this differently or that. And, you know, and that is how we learn. Absolutely. How boring would it be if, if you just mastered everything? You'd be bored in a week, right? Oh, that would be awful. Yeah, no, that will never happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said two words in there I was struggling to find. You said um, exclusion and inclusion and also judgment. And that brings me to uh, maybe a, a twist in our conversation here, but it was a conversation that you were, uh, you and I were involved in that I felt like never, never wrapped up. And that was at the Best Horse Practices Summit. We were both on a Q&A panel and we got a question about, and again, I'm struggling for the, the, the current politically correct were, I guess, diversity and inclusivity, inclusiveness within the horse world. My perspective on it was that when you looked at the group of us, you could see that we're mostly white people or that we were about half male and half female or, or a lot of things, but there were a lot of different ways to slice that pie up. So we, we had two non-Americans. We had people of different sexual orientations we had on the panel we were sitting there with. We had a Buddhist, a Mormon, a Catholic, a Jew, and an atheist all sitting up there. We had uh, parents of adoptive children with mixed-race families. I, I felt like if you actually knew all of the people involved, we were an incredibly diverse group of people who the horse had brought together. If you're looking at it through some of these basic labels and prisms, then you might just see women and men or white people or, or something like that. So we touched on this a little bit earlier, but you are a non-native, you are a woman, um, you are married to a non-native who is uh, of Hispanic origin. And, and so what are your thoughts on this diverse diversity conversation going on right now yeah uh, yeah thanks for for you know wanting to go there and thanks for bringing this back up because i felt like you i felt like we didn't really uh concluded we didn't really come to a you know to to, you know like we didn't really take it where it needed to go and uh you know and, and i think you're right i mean i think there's more diversity at the best horse practices summit than in a lot of other horse um you know, related, uh, you know, uh, worlds and, and, you know, and places that you could go to. I also think, you know, it's like, there's, um, like some, um, you know, some division that in, again, between English and Western, like dressage is a lily white sport. And, you know, there's hardly any, like the people that are, that are not white in the dressage world are the people that clean the stalls. That's why my husband who is, uh, uh, yeah, 
yeah, he's Chicano, he's Mexican-American. Like he says, you know, it's like, yeah, he's been really uncomfortable at some of the barns where I've worked because he feels like when he comes in, like the, the people will look at him and then try to hand him a, pit, a pitchfork. And that's not really what he's there for. He's my husband. And, you know, he doesn't really do that. So, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so that there is that side of the horse world and it's probably worse in dressage than in other parts. I have those conversations a lot with an older friend of mine who comes from the tradition of barrel racing and rodeo. And she says, you know, and we always talk about the Western tradition of riding that is a lot more inclusive traditionally than the the English one because like in Europe you know riding horses was like the 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 exclusive the, the exclusive domain of the the landed gentry like the people who had the money and the land they got to ride horses and the you know the the poor tenant farmers didn't whereas then here like out west well it's like yeah you ride because it's you know horses a means of transportation and if you can ride it you can ride it and you know in, in rodeo it's a very democratic kind of a sport like you know you stay on or you fall off yeah you know, it doesn't matter what you look like and so that's you know that that's the difference <laughs> well yeah wouldn't you agree like there's you know, a native american rodeo this black rodeo i mean that's like a very uh yeah that's a very diverse sport mm-hmm. i love that about it um and yeah if you yeah even here it's like in new mexico if you look at like the you know the, the barrel racing world or you know it's like any of that or even you know uh yeah it's there there's a lot of diversity there there's you know that, that's practiced on on the on the now reservation and and, and everywhere um, that said, I do think if you look at your standard group of horse people, you know, that is, you know, that that's, you know, there there are a lot more white people than you'd expect. And, and even at the best horse practices summit, there was Nashon and then there was the rest of us and, you know, maybe one other person or two. And so I'm like, okay, we can maybe do better than that. And I'm not accusing you or anybody else of being racist, you know, other than, you know, in the way that we all are, because we've been, you know, swimming around in the toxic soup for 400 years. But I do think, you know, it's like if like I'm always looking like how can we make it to where people like recognize themselves? How can there be more role models? Like how can there be like, a, you know, Venus and Serena Williams of, you know, of equestrian sports? I mean, that sort of thing. And, you know, USCF has picked up on that and they're, they're trying to be a little more inclusive. But, uh, you know, that's something that's always at the back of my mind. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it's like horses are good for people. And I mean, horses are really good for all people. And, you know, there's, I think, a lot of kids from backgrounds that, you know, that are, you know, different from ours who would never really think of, of taking up horseback riding. And that's because they don't see anybody else that looks like them. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? I have a lot of that that I would agree with. I have some points of it that I would would disagree with. I think the horse world, in my experience, is a fairly, at least on the professional side, is a fairly motley crew. You, you have a lot of interesting characters that have backgrounds you wouldn't expect in this business, which is part of why I think it's fun to talk That's- to them, you know? Um, like I was not raised, even though I'm, I'm yeah. your white guy, I was not raised in a family that had horses or, or anything like that. I was just a very horse crazy kid and didn't matter what kind of cage you put me in. I was going to find my way out of it to a horse. And, um, so I, I'm also all about any sort of kid that wants to be around horses. I will go through a lot of trouble to make that happen. Uh, I, I think that's a wonderful experience, but I don't think that we should be going out of our way to offer certain things to certain groups. I don't like the idea of identifying people into a group just because they happen to be 
from an urban background or or they're black or they're mexican or they're whatever i'm i'm generally trying to look at people kind of like horses as individuals maybe you're a thoroughbred but you're the laziest thoroughbred i've ever met you don't necessarily fit the the norm of what a thoroughbred is supposed to be right and and if i treat you like all the hot thoroughbreds are supposed to be i'm not going to get you trained i had better recognize what you are as an individual and handle you that way and i think the people out there that really want to be around horses are are going to find a way to them just like i did and i think it's okay that you wind up with certain activities or genres or professions or whatever that don't wind up with a perfect 50 50 mix of however you want to cut the pie you know it, it's okay that the nba is mostly black i don't have a problem with that <laughs> it, um, if you no, actually... i don't have a problem with that either i mean you know, i don't have a problem with the nba being mostly black i think that's you know but i think the difference there is that that horses really are i mean that's something i believe and i think you believe it too that horses are actually fundamentally good for people for sure and you know they make us they make us better people so i'm like okay so expanding access to horses is like a really positive thing i, I would certainly agree with that statement yes ma'am i mean one thing i don't know if you're aware of this but the horse world is shrinking and rapidly since about 2007 a full third of the horses in the united states have, have gone away we've gone from since 2007, we've gone from about 10.4 million to about 7.2 million horses. So that's actually a little bit more than a third. Um, that's so really worrisome. It, it, it worries me a lot, too. So I'm all about expanding the horse world. And I don't believe in in a mentality of I'm going to keep this for myself or anything like that. I just don't know that this this notion of making things equal or handicapping the race or, or giving this particular group no a, no no, a, no. It's, a it's not about it's not about yeah. creating a perfect proportion no it's not about that at all daniel it's just about creating opportunities for people that might not otherwise have had them i mean i was like you i didn't have the opportunity i created it but i also had an easier time creating it because i had within bicycling distance i had a couple of barns that i could go to and mm -hmm. hang out in and you know and eventually find you know, horses to ride in and all of that so i had those opportunities and there's a lot of kids that don't have those opportunities and maybe if the opportunities were there and we took you know a little bit you know more uh uh, we were a little bit, uh, you know, uh, more creative in, in creating those opportunities, and then, you know, the, there would be, you know, the, the good things could happen. That's all I'm saying. No, no, I, I, and I, I agree with that. Again, I'm not trying to say anybody needs to be excluded. I mean, one of the programs I was with for a long time was the Boy Scouts of America, and I actually ran a horsemanship program for them, and I put hundreds of kids on horses for their first ride and, and that kind of stuff, and they were, you know, about as diverse a, a group of kids as as you could have i guess I yeah just, and i bet a few of them stuck with it and and you changed their lives i mean that's something I that's would huge hope. yes ma'am i would hope i don't know if that's true but it, it, who knows you may have that kid come up to you in in 20 years and says hey you're the guy that uh, that changed everything for me but so anyway that that's sort of my my view on it like i i have known when I was apprenticing particularly, there were several young women that I knew that always had a chip on their shoulder about being a girl. 
and always felt like they were, you know, treated differently because they were a girl and all. And in my experience, to a degree, they were, but it was in the opposite direction of what they thought. <laughs> they were given more leeway and allowed to make mistakes that I would have been fired for. But because they were a girl, they were, but they never saw it that way. They always thought that the standard was higher for them and so forth. And, and I never saw it that way at all. And I have to say that all of those girls that had the chip on their shoulder, they're no longer in the business. The, the well, yeah, that... and it's, it's not good to have a chip on your shoulder. Of course not. But let me tell you a story from when I was apprenticing. And yeah, I didn't have my green card yet. And the people I worked for who were pretty you know, ruthless Western pleasure trainers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the guy started hitting on me and, you know, his wife was the main trainer and she was right there. That didn't concern him. And, you know, it was getting pretty uncomfortable. And, you know, it's like, uh, yeah. And then he started telling me, he's like, well, you know, it's like if you, you know, like, like if you, you know, uh, you know sleep with me and, and, and have my child and maybe you could like, like get a green card and stay there for that which would have never worked i mean uh, there were some things going on that were i mean that were pretty horrendous and that uh you know i'm, I'm yeah i'm glad nothing you know worse than that happened but yeah it's like that got really really uncomfortable i had nowhere to go i had no way to defend myself like i was putting uh being put under all sorts of pressure and it's like okay well you are you know basically you are just german meat here for my taking and you don't have a green card i can do whatever i want so that's the kind of thing you run into sure. yeah so no it's not all you get breaks yes but, but like that's what the way i look at it is you met an individual who happened to be a shitty guy it isn't like an industry standard that right. things are are you know across the board run that way you just just like you might no, run i'm into, not saying that they are yeah. but no, it's not an industry standard. Thank goodness. There were other people too, but it is, you know, it's like an, an unequal world that we live in. And all I'm saying is like, we should maybe take some steps to make it like make access to horses a tiny bit more equal, not, you know, like, like enforcing people who don't really want to do it to be around horses. But it's like, if, you know, there's opportunities, if there's role models, if there's, you know, like the sense of inclusivity in there, I blame the, the English world and the dressage world more than, more than anybody, because that is like a trademark of a lot of those English writing disciplines. Exclusivity is there and arrogance is there. And that drives me absolutely crazy. That's another thing that, that makes me like the Western world a lot more because then you don't really see that like that. Definitely. Like you tend to be, to be more accepted for what you are, and maybe that's where you're coming from. But I see the other side too. So, and yeah, so, like being a woman apprenticing at a Western pleasure barn, like that was that did not turn out very well for me, and I was lucky to get out of there when I did. So, I mean, see, people were <laughs> of the Western ple pleasure trainers that I know, I would be more concerned with my son having that issue there than my daughter. <laughs> You know, so you maybe found that's the, probably the true. <laughs> that's true in the hunter jumper world too, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, no. I mean, but yeah, no. There's shitty individuals, but then there's also like a culture that kind of enables that, and and you know that's all I'm saying. And there's like pockets of that. I'm not saying the entire culture, but there's yeah. definitely pockets of it. And and I know I've lived there. Well, so what would and I if, know that you know when I first got together with my husband, I was still apprenticing at a yeah. 
And I first got together with my husband. Yeah. So that was, yeah, I was still apprenticing. I was still working for some pretty shitty Western show people. And yeah, so like he didn't know anything about horses, but he was Mexican. So he'd come and, you know, and then and come pick me up and they would just basically expect him to like, like sweep the barn aisle and then whatever. And I was like, no, you know, and, and so there were some, some, you know, and, and so the, the person that I worked for, that was, you know, yeah. So the trainer that I worked for, she took me to the side and she said, oh, well, if you stay with this guy, you know, then all you, you're going to have a baby every year and learn how to make tortillas. Is that what you want? out of life and i was like no and i still to this day i haven't learned how to make tortillas i can cook a lot of other things but yeah david has never expected me to do that and we've been married for 32 years now yeah so you know it's like yeah you can say that's a shitty individual and that's not representative and i hope you're right and i think you're right but you know those those people exist so i i can proudly tell you i make a hell of a good tortilla myself uh, I, i'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> quite you, a cook. Yeah, i actually cook more than my wife does she might disagree with that but i promise you that's true so anyway oh well what would you say then? <laughs> yeah. if we agree that there is this problem then what would you propose as a solution to it how do you make it more inclusive how do you equalize opportunities what are I don't I don't think there's a grand scale answer there, but in, in again individual pockets you can you can affect those things as individual people do. So so what are what do you suggest to make that happen? Uh, that yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Like I was thinking, like about you know, just uh, yeah, it, it it's really hard because uh, you know, how do we make it more diverse? It's like you know, we can't just you know be all ham handed about it and 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 say, well, you know, we need to like get you know fifty percent of of you know non white people showing in dressages. That's, that's not going to happen. That's not realistic, and and that's I don't think would get us anywhere. But like maybe like like offering opportunities, offering scholarships, offering uh, you know, saying, look, this is if if you want to learn about horses, you know this is what what you know what we have to offer like reaching more into places where you wouldn't maybe think to reach out to that sort of thing okay well th see this is the part of that i guess you could call it the slippery slope that that scares me about that i am a big proponent of the meritocracy so so people getting opportunities based upon merit and nothing else i really am not a bigoted kind of person i don't care if you're black white gay straight man woman whatever it's the best person that is the person i want to see excel there which unfortunately does not happen all the time but like there is this is the poster child of of the argument against that for me is you have united airlines whose ceo made the statement that in 2023 the major goal of the airline was to hire pilots based solely on diversity and i'm thinking i kind of want the best pilots well, they still have to be pilots they still have to know yeah. to fly an airplane well they're not well, i don't think they equal. would just hire <laughs> random people to no, fly I an airplane i don't think they're highly but every every spectrum has a lower third to it and anytime it's just the way that math and statistics work anytime you look into a minority spread across that spectrum there are going to be fewer and fewer people in the upper end and so um if you are hiring based upon that like engineers if you wanted to have a company with 50 percent male and female engineers and in engineering women are about an eighth of the um the group there if you 
are looking to hire your firm 50% female engineers, then mathematically, by definition, you're going to have lower quality engineers in the female half of the company, just because there aren't enough of them to... Yeah, this, I would say, then you got to start earlier than engineers. You got to start in elementary school and grade school. And, and you know, there, you know, and, and it, it still is true that girls are often getting the message that, you know, math really isn't for them. And, you know, they're, they're you know, they're, they're, they, they end up doing other things that, you know, that coincidentally, you know, channel them into professions that pay a lot lower than engineering. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so I think it starts a lot earlier than once you're an actual engineer or a pilot. So, so I'll say and this. I think like, it's, you know, it's not so much that, that there are um, all. All right. I'm sorry. You, you broke up on the last part there. Uh, no, no. You, you say what you're going to say. I was, yeah. Oh, um, so I, I was just, like, I've never been a woman. I've never been a girl. I have two sisters. So I was raised with, uh, there were more girls in the family than guys. I, maybe just was oblivious and never noticed, but I, in, in my lifetime, now I think in the sixties and the seventies that the discouraging of girls from math and all was, was certainly happening. And Dr. King has told some stories of that, of things that she's witnessed. I don't know that in, in my generation, I have witnessed that sort of thing. I can definitely say that as a father of two sons that are now school age, I am seeing the discouragement of boys and sort of the handicapping of the race where they're told not to compete and so forth um, so that enough girls will win and, and those sorts of things. And that I find disturbing and contrary to the meritocracy. Uh, and that may be isolated just in my, my little area and some of the things that I have seen, but I mean, to me, it should all be about just like with a horse. We're trying to find straightness, the middle of those two out, outside boundaries. And when we decide that there's yeah. too much on the left, that doesn't mean that a whole lot more of the right is the solution. We're trying to bring it to center, not to the other extreme. And that's the part that I fear with some of this well, social engineering, you know. Well, I, I don't think that, yeah, I don't really like I'm coming from a different place than you. And, you know, like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I can see your concern and sympathize. I definitely think that masculinity in this country is in a crisis. I've been following that. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's definitely like a, yeah, like, like a shift happening. And, and that leaves a lot of, you know, white males at a loss. Like, where do we go from here? Who are we now? Like, things are changing. And I have, I have empathy for that. I totally get that. But on the other hand, I don't think we're in any danger of the other extreme. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the meritocracy, the problem there is that people don't start out like on that same level of ground. Like if everybody started on the same ground on the same spot, well, then, yes, yeah, like, OK, so let the let the best person win. But that's like like over generations and generations that, you know, that you know, that isn't really happening. So it's like you've got some people who start out like in a place that's way behind the others. And so, you know, it's like I, I think, you know, I'm not talking about social engineering. I'm just talking about, you know, just making the, the opportunity opportunities uh you know to where the meritocracy can work as a meritocracy sure i, I think yeah i'm all for equal opportunities but i don't i think when we handicap the races so that we have equal outcomes that no, is a, no, a very no, dangerous not, yeah. like, like for instance again no, if, if i look at uh, the best horse practices summit i think the 
most common thing I have heard said there was more along the lines of diversity of race. So, uh, and they're probably meaning white and black. We had Nashawn, who was the sole black guy, but or the sole among the clinicians, he was the only black guy. But he was one of eight. And statistically speaking, or demographically speaking, black people make up 12 and a half, 13, 14 percent of the population, with 12 and a half percent is one eighth. So we actually had an accurate representation of his race amongst the group of presenters. Well, and that's that's great, but you know that's the best horse practices. Like you've been in other environments, and and you know that that that's not yeah not always sure. the case. And Sean, I had a long talk with him, and yeah, he's told me some stories about you know how where he got discouraged, and and he was mistaken for the groom, and you know, and and you know all of that, and and yeah, you know, so that is a reality. And that's that's all I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you know giving people unfair advantages. I'm just thinking of making the world a, a fairer place. Sure, but but I mean here here's the flip side of that. Did either of y'all ever ask me if I've been mistaken for the groom as a white guy? <laughs> I've been the groom, <laughs> you know. Oh, I've groom. been the groom too. <laughs> you know? I mean, I've been yeah. the barn manager. I've been the 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 the, the mucker. I mean, I've been all yeah. of that. As the apprentice trainer, just because I was a white guy doesn't mean I got high levels of respect from the customers and so forth we get treated differently no that's not as as well. yeah no absolutely and that's and that's great and I'm, I'm, i appreciate that you came up similar to the way i came up like we, we we worked for what we got and i can totally see why you believe in the meritocracy because for you that worked out well and you worked for it and you worked really hard for it and, and you're very proud of what you've done as am i i mean i've worked my tail off to get where i am but you know there's other people where there's always like a, a ceiling there like you know uh i mean like if you, yeah, it, like the, it's, you know, the, the meritocracy, the, the meritocracy has its limits there. Yeah. There's people that, you know, it's like, if you're, it, yeah, if you're Mexican and you work in a show horse barn and I've seen this, like you're going to reach the limit where it's like, you never get to actually do the riding and the showing. It's like, you'll be the head groom maybe. Yeah. You'll, you'll get some respect that way, but you'll never be the person that gets, gets up into that fancy saddle and, and, and gets all the respect. So, so see, I would I would say to that I came up in the cutting world, but have you ever heard, heard of the Benuelas family? Because they're they're the actual example of that not happening. Um, the the older brother. Well, I don't I don't actually I don't think he's the older brother, but Ascension Benuelas came across as a as a wetback and started out as a groom and worked his way into a saddle and became one of the top cutting horse trainers and then brought his brothers into the, I mean, they became a powerhouse family of cutting from exactly that sort of background. So I guess that's just sort of my thought. Everybody looks at the minorities that don't make it, but they don't take into the account that the majority of the majority group doesn't make it to that level either. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's very hard no, I know. for everyone to reach that level, regardless of what particular label or group identity you might have. By definition, very, very few of any group ever reach those sorts of levels. So, you know, that's my perspective. Again, most of the time when I see the people 
that are given, and I'm not, I'm not including you or Nishan or anybody else in this group. Uh, you know, I, I think y'all are all great people. I think the world of you, and that's part of why I'm willing to have this sort of conversation with you. And I, and I hope uh, that's mutual. And, and, you. you know, it's definitely not that yeah, I'm, absolutely. I'm, I'm uh, accusing you or, or anyone else of anything specifically, but I have known people who really had sort of, again, that sort of chip on their shoulder, always thought the reason that they hadn't made it was because of this group identity that they have. And, and again, I'm sitting in the back looking at them going, no, the reason you haven't made it is because you're not good enough. You, you have given yourself this excuse and quit trying and, and you, you're stuck right where you are because you now have this excuse of you can't make it because of X rather than still grinding and still all of the top trainers that I know are the kind of guys that are ladies that are up at four o'clock in the morning, working their butts off, still working lots of horses. And, you know, they're, they are making a habit of excellence. I really can't think of very many that have reached that level that didn't genuinely deserve to be there. I've known a few, but it's, they are the exception, not the rule for sure. So, um, and I don't know, maybe we're just arguing in circles here. I, I'm not trying to, to just start and argue with, with you or anything. And I certainly respect the hell out of you and, and, and all. So again, I'm not aiming any of this at you directly. I just don't think that that perfect world of everyone having the same opportunity, you know, I don't, I don't think that's realistically possible. Uh, and I don't think that some of these group labels no, that it may put not on. be realistically possible. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, it doesn't have to be realistically possible, but like, you know, it's like what I'm never going to quit trying is to make it a little bit better, making it a little bit more equitable. And I think that's a reasonable goal. I'm not saying that we ought to, you know, like like that that we gotta, you know, shoot for like like perfect percentages of of, of different uh, ethnicities and in, in show horses. No, I'm just, you know, talking about okay, horses are good for all people, as you know, you and I certainly agree on. And like, let's, you know, maybe be a little more inclusive and expand those opportunities a little bit, and then maybe there'll be, you know, like like some kid or some apprentice who will, you know, have an opportunity they wouldn't otherwise have had, and we can feel good about that. I mean, that's that's all I'm saying. I, I, I'm completely not, on board with every bit of that. Yep. So. Okay. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, what what else? Now that I've made everything awkward, what else can we chat about? You've you've written two books: "Ride with Feel," a guide for the rest of us, and "Dressage for All of Us." So you you are definitely living the life and putting putting yourself where your mouth is in making things accessible to everyone so how would you define after having written a book on riding with feel how do you define or approach what feel is because i certainly agree with you it is it is not an easy concept to pin down and explain um, so how do you go about that so um yeah so feel is so if you think of riding a horse or being with the horse as a two-way conversation um it's uh yeah that's how i think about it it's, it's like so you know it's like so you know generally like you know we learn like when we learn how to ride it's like it's okay you tell the horse what to do it's like you're the boss you tell the horse what to do you you know give the horse like all those imperatives do this do that to me feel is like the other part of that coin it's like our willingness and ability to listen to what the horse has to say about it 
so that is feel like the horse's side of the conversation, like you know, being able and willing to understand that that's feel. Okay. W- would you say that the horse is always right? Like, is it, no. is it okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we've got, yeah. So we've, no, I'm not one of those people. No. So the horse has like an, an input and we got to be willing to listen to it, but we don't always say, yes, yes, yes. You go ahead. You do what you think is best. That's really, I mean, that is not what makes a partnership better. No. So we've got our reasonable requests. And that's like another part of feel is to think, okay, so what can I ask this horse right now to keep my request polite and reasonable and then be able to say, wow, that was good. So, and and that's something that I'm always learning and, and always fine tuning and always trying to teach people, like, what is the right thing to ask for? That's the art of timing. So it's like, what is a good thing to ask that horse that I can ask for? I'm pretty sure that horse is going to actually see the point in it and do what I'm asking. And then I get to release some reward. I mean, that's what feel is really for, to create that. And then the horse feels like, okay, we're accomplishing something. And then the horse gets on board with the program. And then the horse and I, in the end, will want the same thing, ideally. But no, there are times when the horse says, like, I would like to go graze over there. And I'm like, hell no. So, yeah, that happens too. Okay. Well, I don't know if, if you have run into any of these people or had to deal with them, but but we now have a movement of the horse giving its its consent and it, it started in the positive reinforcement only world, but it is certainly leaking out into the Western world and particularly some of the more emotional sides of the Western world, which which is the next topic I wanted to get into with you. And I have always viewed training a horse as a fairly parent-child type of a relationship. So we're not we're not equals. Um, I am in charge of you and I am here to make decisions that you may not like at times. So for instance, if I were to ask my 11 year old, if I had his consent to wake him up tomorrow morning to go to school, there's a high likelihood if I went with his consent that he would never go to school. (laughs) Right. I mean, sometimes we have to say, well, I understand you don't like this, but you got to eat your peas anyway. Right. Because that's what's good for you. And so I kind of find this idea of consent from the horse i i understand it on an idealistic level and i certainly want my horse like you just said to want to do these things with me that i'm asking of him but at the same time expecting that on a minute to minute basis and deciding that we must come to a halt if we ever lose his consent i think is an absurd notion that would lead to many that is, I, I'm totally problems. with you there. I think that is, yeah. And that doesn't actually, that does not lead to a good horse rider relationship. I get a lot of people like that who are like, that makes them very nervous when, you know, they, they, I tell them, it's like, no, it's okay to tell your horse to do something like, oh, but then he won't love me anymore. It's like, no, that's, it's not like that. It is not like that. The, the key is to keep your requests to where they're well-timed and reasonable. And then you get to say, okay, that was good. And yeah, ideally we do want the same thing. Ideally the horse says, oh, that's a great idea. And I love it when that happens, but you know, realistically, that's not always going to happen. You know, the, the horse says, oh, I think I'm done now. And then I have to say, well, we're going to do this for a little bit longer. Thank you. And, you know, then things are good. And then we expand our comfort zones and we, we expand, uh, you know, what we're comfortable doing. But then the horse also learns to trust me more and say, okay, well, she's not going to ask me anything that's going to be super unpleasant. She's not going to ask me anything that's super painful. I'm going to try to do better. It's like, you know, there's a, usually some kind of release. There's some kind of reward. I mean, that to me is what it's all about. But people misunderstand that into thinking, okay, I can't ask 
my horse anything. I just always have to do what my horse wants. And to me, that's, you know, that's not very safe for one thing. I mean, as you can, yeah, as you've probably witnessed, that's also that doesn't, you know, the, the, the horse doesn't really know. Horses like boundaries. Horses can like to know where they are. And as long as you're consistent and you're like, this rule always applies, this boundary is always up, and then they can count on that and then they relax and then there are a lot more with you and they like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I can, I, I can understand where the positive reinforcement movement is coming from. Um, I won't really like go there all the way because I think sometimes, you know, you can't always, I mean, I try to use a lot of positive reinforcements, but there are times when a clear firm no, and then you move on and you're done with is the best thing to do. And, and, and every horse can take that. I've never met a horse that couldn't. Yes, ma'am. I also feel like the, the notion of positive reinforcement to me is at odds with the notion of feel. So, so part of what I try to work my brain around with, with feel, I try to explain it as I'm playing the hot or cold game with my horse and that's part of feel like when I pick up reins I don't have as a default one pound of pressure or 10 pounds of pressure how much pressure I'm applying on the reins is a direct response to how the horse is responding to the pressure I have on the reins so if they're getting further and further out of position I have more and more pressure if they're getting closer and closer to the position then they get less and less pressure and so forth and to me that's how I think of yeah, of feel. That's an example of a boundary that's in place. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. And positive reinforcement does not take that into account. It is more of a black and white and on off sort of a thing. There's there's never the little more pressure if you're getting a little further away, less pressure if you're getting closer, which to me is the most it takes some time for a person to master when they're working yeah. a horse but if you master it oh the horses oh, exactly. respond to it yeah great yeah. yeah they they just come right along once you you can get that working for you um so yeah it's it's it really is like a conversation that you're describing it goes both ways and so you're reading the horse you're feeling the horse you, you adjust what you do based on that information and then the horse is more and more with you and then that's the beautiful feeling right but yeah that with the positive reinforcement where it's always like the click and the treat i'm like that's too standardized for me i mean i could never do that and he was like i've he's like i I'd never say never i mean there's a couple of horses in my barn that have real anxiety problems and then there are occasions when yeah i will feed them a treat you know just to get their mind off stuff but you know that's not this constant thing for me i don't go around carrying a pouch of treats on my person i think that's a stupid thing to do um but um yeah it's uh you know there's a time and a place for most things including an occasional treat but i mean i don't think that that's the only tool we should have in our toolkit and people are always looking for very simple solutions and that click and the treat i mean that's uh you know i think that's probably if you're working with dolphins that's a great way to train the dolphin because that's like the only way we have to communicate mm-hmm. uh, since the dolphin is living in the water and we don't and we can't really follow the dolphin there so we're like okay so you know that's something we can do but with the horse we can communicate i mean that 
to me is the most beautiful thing about riding. It's fascinating. You know, I, it's like, okay, so our back and, and my core muscles, they talk to the horse's back directly and those little shifts that I do, there goes the horse and they can read that. And that to me is just amazing that they let us do that at all and that we can have that conversation. So yeah, to me, like a click and a treat that would really disrupt that process and get me out of my zone. And I wouldn't enjoy that nearly as much. I completely agree. I, I kind of like that there are people out there that are playing with that, but I really view it as a fringe sort of a thing that that's going to maybe give us a valid point of information here and there, but I don't think it can ever be pragmatic or, or realistic. I don't think there's ever a time where being a purist for that is going to be the best outcome for the horse. Um, sort of like you were saying, and I'm, I'm losing my thought on what you said. I had it, and now it's escaping me. Ah, so to me, becoming a good horseman or horsewoman is all about gaining more and more tools in your toolbox. So like we said before, you misread the horse or this doesn't go the way it normally goes. Oh. You have a plan B and another another way that you can approach this and and get something done and and those people ignore all tools except for one and i don't i think that's to the detriment of the horse not to a virtuous end as i I think they they believe but i guess it's a free country we all get to approach it the way we want to approach right Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would be boring if we all did the same thing. And I think, you know, there's a time and a place for the the, the positive reinforcement, like if a horse that has real anxiety and, you know, all of that, well, then, you know, it's like, yeah, that's, you know, kind of what I do, too, except that I I don't actually use the clicker. But, you know, I kind of agree with the philosophy there. But then there's some horses that have very different issues. (laughs) And then the, the, the click and the treat doesn't work nearly as well. Like when the horse is walking all over me, then, you know, it's like, well, I mean, yeah, there's probably a way to approach that. I don't know enough about it, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, to me, just the concept of walking around with like this pouch of treats on my body, I'm like, uh, uh, I'd rather not. Yeah, I'd I'd rather not do that. And when I'm with the horse and we're talking to each other, I don't like, I don't want to interrupt that all the time to say, okay, now I'm going to feed you another treat. For sure. It it is a, a distraction from the conversation. For sure. Um, well, the last thing I, I've kept you a little while here, and I, I know it's it's uh, getting late. So, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was your foray into Western dressage, which seems to have been a pretty successful avenue for you. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about that world? You, are, I've I've talked a little bit about Western dressage on the podcast before, but you're the first person that I've had on that really is directly involved in it. So. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the the rules and the, the challenges that you find in that world, some of the similarities and differences and all. Okay, yeah, gladly. Uh, Western Dressage is a really cool thing. It's like the fastest growing equestrian discipline uh, you know, today or one of them. 
And I think a lot of the people like me who are tending to get a little disillusioned with classical dressage are finding themselves in the Western dressage. So when I first came back to dressage, when I first fell back in love with dressage in the 1990s, when I first went out on my own as a trainer, you know, everybody showed the horses they had in classical dressage. So like I showed like quarter horses and Morgans and Arabians. And, you know, I did pretty well at the lower levels and it was fun. And it was just a lot of I was like, wow, this is a sport that's inclusive. And that's always my my main uh the main thing that i'm looking for that that is like yeah i can show up with the horse and with correct training we, we can do okay and we can hold our own and we can have a good time there um and so you know so so that was you know that i really enjoyed that and then over the last 20 years you know i mean probably in the east a little sooner here in new mexico uh it's a pretty recent thing so now you go to a recognized dressage shows and and all the horses there are horses who are born and bred for the sport for i don't know how many generations so if i showed up with the horses i showed there in the 1990s i'd be laughed out of the ring i mean there's no way that any judge in the open classes would even look at me and it's not supposed to be that way but that's the reality of it so now you know western dressage you can show up with a quarter horse and it's like it's it's really really interesting it's something that i've always felt was true it really speaks to the overlap between dressage and western and so you know there's uh you know a lot of common elements so you know as i consider the working trot you do the working jog which is like a gate that's going somewhere but you can do it all day so it takes like the comfort of rider in consideration um when you do at the higher levels of western dressage when you do the 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 instead of the turn on the haunches you're supposed to do the pivot which the classical dressage people you know think oh my god that's terrible you know the pivot the horse like loses the purity of the gate uh, and, and just pivots around the inside hind foot to this I will say well you know it's like if you're working a cow or, or whatever it's like you can gain a lot of speed around that inside hind foot whereas if you're keeping the purity of gait and the inside hind foot keeps stepping like in a correct turn of the haunches and the cow will be long gone by the time you do the turn so you know that is the nod to the the western tradition but to me you know like the common elements are still so much more important like yeah whether you're doing a pivot or a turn on the haunches the horse has to be you now moving like in fluidity and and uh, can you hear me? Oh, there you are. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah, that's probably my computer. The window just closed. But uh, yeah, so so to me, like Western dressage is like this this effort, you know, on you know, like a, a small group of idealistic people, you know, uh, made that happen. And, and they looked at, look, this is like what a good dressage horse, a good Western horse, but this is what a good horse should go like. And, uh, you know, we're doing it. And there's levels just like in classical dressage, but there's like a lot more effort to be positive in the comments. I mean, I've picked up comment sheets from classical dressage tests that just leave me like crying and utterly crushed because I'm like, I will never be any good. In Western dressage, judges generally try to be a little bit more positive about stuff. So that's all, you know, very good. And you can show up with a smaller horse and, you know, that doesn't have those, those spectacular gates and you can do well and you can do all those movements. And then, yeah, and I think that's a really, really positive thing. Yes, ma'am. Well, we have a, a Try small. It. Yeah, we've had <laughs> a small group around here that's done a couple of shows, but I I kind of think they did a show or two for a year or two, and I don't know that they're still active at all. But uh, again, that would be the sort of thing that that I I would I would like to go play with a little bit. I think, um, and I do think you hit on one of those things. I yeah, I, I bang this drum. It. Yeah, I bang this drum all the time, but. I think really the detriment of all of these things comes down to the judging. Uh, if the judges are there to be the standard holders and if they allow Western pleasure horses to lope around at half of a mile an hour with their nose four inches off of the ground, 
and they reward that and let it win, then that's what you're going to get. And the same with dressage. If they won't even look at a horse that's not the right combination of breeds or 17 hands plus or all of that sort of stuff. And, and the judges are the ones that are being discouraging rather than encouraging and educational to people, then they're really the ones that wind up ruining it for everybody. So uh, I don't know what we ever get done with that. I know it's probably as difficult or more difficult in the dressage world to become a judge as it is in any other. But uh, to your point, like I know a dressage judge. Oh, it's really hard. Yeah, I know a dressage judge reasonably well around her around here and i've seen her ride and if she were to give me a negative comment on my exhibition i probably would just laugh it off rather than take it to heart and cry <laughs> you know so not all judges are yeah what they're cracked up to be you know i'll just say that but i don't know how we no, fix I that. know i know yeah i know but it's you know i think yeah, to your point, though, I mean, I think it's not just the judges. I mean, I've talked to judges about this, and you know, they, they say, well, we can only judge what we see. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's, uh, you know, breeders and, and, and owners and people who buy horses, like everybody's like, okay, so, you know, it's like, we can only like, like, we have to breed the horses that people will buy and the horses that will win. And we have to, you know, like trainers have to like choose the horses that they think will do well. I mean, that's where I, I just don't want to be like a, you know, like a mainly show trainer anymore, because I don't want to go that right. I don't want to say, okay, like, I'm going to focus on the horses that can do well and, and win the ribbons and win the medals. It's like, no, I think dressage really is a very demanding democratic kind of a thing to do with a horse that it you know it's it's even you know more beneficial to a horse that maybe doesn't have a, a ton of natural talent and, and and not not a ton of you know trainers falling all over themselves to get to work with that horse you know and that is what makes me happy when i get a horse that you know other people have maybe given up on and saying oh this is not a good horse and then you can you know, unlock the potential and then they turn out to be really nice so, you know, it's not just the judges, it's like an industry-wide thing. Like once you get into the the showing mindset where more is always better and you have the standards, it's like, well, with best of pleasure, I'm sure it started out, you know, in the 1970s or whenever as something perfectly reasonable. There's a relaxed horse going down the rail in a, in a nice, comfortable jog and lope. And then it's like, okay, so the horse that's slowest always wins and the head can be a little lower. It's like, oh, my horse's head can be even lower than that. And then pretty soon had what evolved into, which isn't pretty anymore anymore mm -hmm. in which nobody really wants to see yeah and i think in dressage there's something similar happening i'm working on an article where it, like that's going to ruffle some feathers about you know western pleasure and dressage and the similarities that i see where it's more and more about the picture that's presented and if you're not corresponding to that picture as an exhibitor then you know it's like there's no sense in even being in that ring and, you know, it's partly the tack and the outfit and all of that in dressage as in Western pleasure, but it's more than anything, the horse's way of going. It's the confirmation and the way of going. It's in the Western pleasure, that very flat knee and flat hock where they have no, no up and down, you know, going on at all in dressage. It's that big overstep and that, you know, not even functional, those huge trots and huge canners. And, you know, that's also, you know, that's also something a little bit problematic because it's not, you know, conducive to long-term soundness and it's not, you know, conducive to, you know, really solid training that respects the horse's individual personality and the horse's, you know, um, aging progress and all of that. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a bigger problem and it has to do with, you know, with showing and people just getting super competitive about it. Couldn't agree more. And, and that's all the big part of why 
I choose not to have a whole lot to do with that world, but hopefully we wind up with some of these things like work in equitation and Western dressage that maybe have a, they haven't been ruined yet. How about we'll, we'll put it that way. Maybe, maybe 20 years from now, they're just as guilty, but uh, I hope, I hope new things keep coming out that, that are still fresh and still stay true to the classics because classics never go out of style. Right. Now, I, I used to, one of the right. trainers that I apprenticed under was one that was very guilty of what you're talking about. When, whenever a horse would, he'd get a call about one for training, you know, he, he wanted to see the papers and if the papers didn't suit him, then he wasn't even interested in trying the horse. And I always thought that was just absolutely ridiculous, you know, uh, but it was the way he wanted to run his business, but it's certainly not the way I want to run mine. So anyway. Right. Always. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally see that. And you know, with the competitive stuff, it's back to what I was saying earlier about running the ultra marathons. I think if we can get a little bit more of that mindset of like, look, like to me, shows like are, you know, the, the times that I've loved showing. And, you know, it's like, yeah, there are, there are shows that I've really enjoyed. It's like, it's more of like the celebration, the sense of community is like, look, we're here together on a weekend showing our beautiful horses. And yeah, there's going to be somebody who wins and somebody who doesn't. But at the end of the day, that's not the most important thing. Like, can we maybe do that? Can we maybe get there? And not involve a gazillion dollars of prize money and, and and make it a little bit more playful and where people just use it like look this is what we're doing together and 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 you know it's a really great thing we get to do it yeah you're supposed to be competing against yourself in the end uh, yeah I, I know there have been times i, I want to show and i was very disappointed in my horse the the run did not go the way i wanted it to go he was not with me and i don't know what the judge was watching maybe compared to the other people in the class my horse was better but i was i was not at all pleased i left that show knowing i had work to do at home you know so we should be competing against ourselves and what we know our horse is capable of maybe not so much against everybody else all the time so and i love the idea of of being uplifting and absolutely yeah helping other people and and all of that so i think really kind of like the uh the husband trainer that you you had to deal with when you were apprenticing it's just assholes assholes are the problem with everything if we could just get rid of the assholes then the rest <laughs> of it would be great you know that would be really nice. that would <laughs> so, be very cool how do we do that anyway <laughs> well well, Catherine, I have that's kept the subject you. for another podcast. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, I have kept you quite a while. Uh, I don't didn't mean to keep you this late. Uh, tell David uh, I appreciate him. Oh, it's Let, been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Danielle. David understands. Yes, ma'am. Well, I, I do always enjoy getting to chat with you. I hope I get to ride with you soon someday down the road. I might actually have a clinic developing around uh, Santa Fe. So if, if we get that lined up, I'll definitely give you a call and we'll get oh, together. That'd be fun. I'd love to see you. Yeah, keep me posted on it. Okay. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, uh, all right. Well, thank Sounds you again. Good. For... I'll have a great rest of your evening and great talking. And thanks for having me. Yes, ma'am. And we will have in the show notes all right. links we'll to talk your. To you yeah. oh. So we'll have in the show notes links to Katrin's website and her books and her Facebook presence and all of that. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, if you did like the podcast, we would always appreciate if you'll give us a rating on whatever 
directory that you happen to be listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcast or whatever, and we'll see y'all next week. Thank you much. We'll see you next week for another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I've been your host, Daniel Dolphin.